three. Yeah. It's a whole science in itself. Can we start right now in this game? Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I keep talking about this. Uh. Okay. <laughs> just on the topic of lyrics. Oh, hey, Michigan, you want to get a little closer just oh, yeah. in But yeah, so so me and the singer were talking about rap. And the singer does, uh, he makes beats and everything. So <clears throat> we were just discussing how when I when I did my rap music, uh, the first rap I ever really wrote was a free writing. What happened was my, uh, I used to always make raps in the tape recorder. Actually, growing up, yeah. I'd made some written raps, but I always did raps in the tape recorder. And then one day my tape recorder broke. Mm-hmm. So I just started like free writing. And I didn't even think it was good. Like, I was just free writing all the rhymes. And then I read it to my cousin. I don't know why. And then she was like, mm. oh, wow, that's really good. Mm. And then that's that was my style from then on. Mm. Um, and we were talking about how, like, I didn't know it was good. I wouldn't know my raps are good. I had to read them to her. And even today, like, if I were to write a rap, I have to read it to my friend and ask, is this good or not? And he'll right. tell me, yeah, it's good. It's not. I can't tell. Right. And and was kind of saying the same type of thing with his with his beats. Like, sometimes... You might throw it away, but then he, he's thinking to throw it away. But then later he'll look at it and be like, "Oh, this is pretty good." Mm. And like, I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting phenomena. But like, I think with me with the raps, it's not me writing it. I do free writing. So I and, and it's also like I need to be in a different type of state. I know some mm. people they do drugs to do it. Mm. For me, it needs to be I need to be playing basketball. I need to be nervous to be making raps. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like just with paying attention to people's lyrics and how. Well, just like I was saying, younger, when I was younger, I'd write them out, and I'd look at it, and I'd go to reread it back, and it's like, I know how it's supposed to sound, because I heard it off the record, but um, if you were to just read it and have it not heard the song, it wouldn't rhyme the same, you know what I'm saying? You wouldn't see how it worked, and so to get, to get the lyrics to work and fit, and the different things to rhyme. It's like, you re- write it out, it's like, oh, the, these words don't even rhyme with each other. But when you hear it yeah. delivered, it works. And so... And you're asking, how do they do that? Right. For me, it's subconscious. Mm. Like, people would, like, I would read my raps to my friends in college, and they'd be like, damn, that's amazing. Like, how do you do that? Mm. And I didn't even know all those rhymes were there. Right. It, right. it was just like something that just yeah. happened. Yeah, definitely. I'm not aware of it. Yeah. It's like when you're playing basketball, too. I didn't know what I was doing, but that's the best way to do yeah. it. Yeah, it's interesting. And um, I feel like, for me at least, people that I like to listen to, because you can think of it from through different lenses. So it's like, if I just wanted to write rhymes that rhymed, like the content didn't matter, who I am and what my life is in relation to the content doesn't matter. It's just, I just want to put words together that rhyme. Yeah. That's like, one target you can try to hit but in my opinion it's not going to be very interesting yeah and and it's like also like if rhymes are really clean like they just go really easy like cat in the hat type rappers Uh. it's not bad but it's like i feel like to some extent the the content or the like the word sincerity the the yeah. earnestness of the yeah. person trying to convey something that's genuine to them, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then it's like you have to balance the rhyme scheme with the message. There's a message that you want to convey. So you can't just pick words that fit together neatly. You have to convey an idea, and then you have to find the words or force 
the rhyme scheme that will portray that and and that to me is like really where it gets interesting because you see rhyme schemes that don't make sense any other way and you just realize like the only reason a person came up with this artistic combination is because there was a place in them that they had to convey and they forced it to work mm. somehow and then it becomes really genuine this is the way I look at it I don't want to listen to somebody rap I want to listen to God rap right and and like yeah, what you're talking about that sincerity and stuff mm. what I noticed was and if, if, I guess some people maybe the people who grew up in the ghetto like when I'd be on I'll just give an example I was on mm. Kauai and it was I was with the, some black guys who would sell drugs and stuff mm. they grew up in that environment mm. and, and that's what what they know and, and so their development was stunted but what they know is drugs and and violence and stuff mm. like that so that's what they're rapping about mm. but with me I didn't grow up in that I, I'm not mm. familiar with that That's mm. but what I you know what I do like to rap about is basketball mm. because I know everything about basketball I did that my mm. whole life mm. so that that just comes natural so sometimes when I would freestyle and stuff I would just in the middle of my freestyle I would just revert to basketball mm. and then it, some, somehow it would flow out better and another thing I like to rap about like when I would write my raps if I was writing in, in a mode of like ignorance in the mode of like self indulgence uh, you know arrogance mm. it wasn't as good but if I'm in the mode of like philosophy transcendence mm. like an expansive consciousness mm. it's almost like it merges so much purer like more beauty mm. would come out mm. of it but it's not like I was trying to do that right. it's like that's what the universe wanted and it was it was it was allowing that to come through because it knew that there was something higher going on there and maybe I was in kind of a higher state and Again, it's like it wasn't me writing it. Yeah, the stuff that I was thinking about, like I would write about robots, machines, philosophical uh, topics like thinking, emotion, contemplation. Like I like to write rap mm-hmm. about that type of stuff. This was before I discovered the quadrant model, but mm-hmm. but when I'm doing it in that philosophical lens, I felt like more beauty would come through. And maybe like I'm thinking like the Hari Krishna stuff and the or the, or the Iskon stuff. With the the beauty of those, it's it's also coming through like a. <clears throat> Like a transcendental, like the the topics are really elevated, mm-hmm. and and I think that like form and content they go hand in hand. Yeah, well that that's like the most amazing combination. If you get yeah. content that is miraculous on its own, just on the strength of the substance of it, yeah. and then you combine that with poetic delivery that's also miraculous on its own yeah that's like then you then you like i feel like that's the the highest bar when the content and the art of the delivery are each in their own right would be spectacular yeah because like you can have really good delivery and really but like not saying anything just gibberish or you can have really dense meaningful thought but there's not much room for poetry it's all serious so to be able to combine those two is something I feel like I had that dude I feel like I had that but I guess the universe it wasn't my time but at some point I'm gonna try to get back into it yeah get back into basketball and stuff but but like yeah I remember while one time I was showing my friend Lost Children of Babylon raps and okay. and he was like I don't like it cause I don't like the form like mm-hmm. but he was like I, if, if, if I had 50 cent rapping about these topics right, right. then it would be better uh-huh. but for me it was like those it, it, they don't need to be separate for me it was the more elevated the consciousness yeah. the better the form I know that's I've noticed that myself uh, <clears throat> if I listen to music if I listen to a song and I don't like the beat 
off the bat. I'm like, eh, not not my style. Me too, me too. And <laughs> even like someone's flow or their voice, I don't particularly like it. But if somewhere along in the song, like even one line or two lines, yeah. makes a point that I feel just like hits on the mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then I'll go back to the song just for that, and yeah. I keep going back to it. And eventually, I find like I like the beat. I like the everything. It's like my taste grows to mm. appreciate all the other things that came with it like when the content catches me so yeah. that i feel like the, the the content and that could you know there's both sides to that there's positive content that's like what do you say conscious or whatever yeah and then you have really grimy things as well yeah that you can still appreciate <clears throat> as um anyway that's a big conversation but the uh, there's there's a lot we can get into with that yeah. stuff, man. But but we're really quick though with that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I one thing I that always is interesting to me is like when I listen to a song and I hate it when I listen to it and then someone said something I'm like whoa that really struck exactly. me exactly that struck me yeah. right there. I'm just thinking like one example where this guy was like yeah people start are, are acting all like they think that things are all fun and games until you know something goes down right. but the way he said it was like super super powerful and I was like right. dude that was kind of amazing the way he said that right. but then I forget what song it was or even uh-huh. who said it mm-hmm. and then like for my whole life I'm thinking like damn I wish where I could just song? where, where is, is that song, song yeah. man I, yeah, I definitely know that yeah but but I was gonna say though like and also yeah we have the people who who think that okay preaching like the mm-hmm. the conscious rap that's also that's not the that's not God speaking still Mm. That's the flow, and that's still coming from the ego, and that to me, that's not coming from from the divine, because it's it's like they're trying to say something too hard. They're not, and then and then the content and the form don't. I mean, the content might be good, might be decent, mm. but even like I think if the form is good, and they they go hand in hand, and they they both come from like the higher harmony. If your consciousness is in that higher divine state, they're both going to just emerge, and that's what I do with my free writing. And I want to find a you know mm. I think the best rapper would be a free writer because then it's not you writing it and somehow the divine's going to come through. And when I wrote my raps, I would find a lot of fours in them. When I look back at the raps I wrote, I would write four a lot. This is before I discovered the quadrant. I think something divine was going on with it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we'll just launch into that, that from one perspective, if someone thinks that there is order I mean, just as a general spectrum, you have chaos as one possibility in describing existence, yeah. and you have order, and there's various points along that spectrum, theism <coughs> land somewhere, whatever, yeah. evolution, they're, they're somewhere on this general spectrum, but if you entertain the ideas that there's like order that originates from a higher consciousness than what we are currently in then because it's kind of like I was talking the other day to my friend who stares with me that I said like you know people sometimes people can point to events in their life where it's like (coughs) in retrospect or whatever where they look at that event and they're like that happened for a reason like you know, whatever it is, like, something, something, yeah, I was yeah. gonna go here, and then the whole weird string of events happened, and then my car broke down, and then da 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 and then, you know, or sometimes you see, like, a plane crashes, and some guy that was trying to make the plane, and 
all these weird events happened leading up to it, and they couldn't make it, and then the plane crashes. Yeah. And they look back, and they're like, Happened with shit. the dude who made a uh, family guy. Okay. Yeah, he was supposed and, to be on the plane that went on the September 11th. He was oh, supposed wow. to be on that plane, oh, wow. and he missed it. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes events like this happen, and then it opens up an idea in someone's mind, like, maybe there is order. Maybe there is some purpose why that event happened that way. But then I would say to that is, is it that that event was designed particularly on purpose or is it that all events have a purpose and yes. we only picked up on it at one point that's a good point man. yeah that's because a good point. if that's because if all things have a purpose then then it's not so much like oh this event happened that changed my life and i swear there was some divine purpose it's, it's good to find it to feel that but that should open up the larger conversation that is there a bunch of purpose for behind things that i'm missing on the regular basis and I just think that's normal. And so with things like, you know, you could say free writing, freestyling, yeah. and many forms of art where someone kind of like, you know, people call it the flow. It can yeah. be in a bunch of things. They kind of like, they're not in control, but it's also not completely involuntary. It's like there's exactly. a middle ground where you're lending yourself to something to act through you, maybe dance or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. it's like... If we combine these two ideas, that there's a higher transcendent order yep. that actually has <clears throat> purpose behind many everything that's going on, and then our ability to lend ourselves somewhat to a flow or a current that we feel we're not completely in control of, mm-hmm. that's... that's uh, you know, people, and then there's all kinds of people of different backgrounds and belief systems that feel some version of that. Yeah. Like, you know, I was watching a little mini documentary on uh, Alchemist Beatmaker. I don't know if yeah, you know Alchemist yeah. And he was saying, he was saying, like, I forget exactly what he was saying. Like, I'm, I'm hunting to make the perfect beat. And I still haven't done it. Like, all the beats I make, it's like I'm on a mission to make the perfect beat. Yeah. And I still haven't got there yet. Which is a nice, you know, it's like this, like, continuous drive to, like... But he said something else in there that... He said, you know, I want I want it to be bigger than me. When I make a beat, I don't want it to just be my ability. I'm yeah. reaching up to be a medium for some other inspiration or something to come through in the beat. Something like that. So, you know, a lot of <clears throat> arts in life... And really, someone could apply it to anything, cooking or whatever it is, where it's like you have a certain skill level that you're familiar with, but at the same time, if you just rely on that, you're 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 limited. So you want to use your skill and your knowledge to try to like push the limits to allow other room for other influence or other variables to also affect it. Yeah, I was. It's like you're you're connected to a higher harmony type of thing. But I'm thinking that like in terms of basketball, I used to use this metaphor, and I remember I would talk about this with my friend in college. Uh, one time we were having this conversation, and I was saying like everybody has access to this flow. And then at the time I was looking for like patterns, and there was like uh-huh. a dude standing in blue and a dude standing in red, and I was like looking at the contrast. It's kind of weird. Like I'm not gonna get into all that, but but what we were talking about was like yeah, there's that flow type of thing, but like 
it's not just random. And I'm think I'm trying to think of like Krishna, like the mm-hmm. Leela, his dance. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking of like when I would play basketball. Mm-hmm. If I were to be planning this stuff out, like right. if I'm if I'm dribbling and I'm thinking, okay, I put my foot like this, I gotta do this. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna do what's perfect. Right. But if I can be in that, when I would be in the state where I'm not aware of what I'm doing, I'm mm-hmm. just like. But then I would do this one move I remember, and I done, never knew how I did it my whole life, all the way going up to college. Mm-hmm. I would do, now I know because I looked at video, right. me doing it. Mm-hmm. But I would do this move, and I would like do this strange thing with my body, like contortion, mm-hmm. and it just had so much power behind it, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of incredible. Like I'll, I'll show you really quick what it is. Mm-hmm. Like I would kind of go like this, and I would step like this, mm-hmm. and I would step back, and then I go like that. Okay. But I didn't know it at the time, and I had to be dribbling with my right hand and mm-hmm. go to my left usually. Mm-hmm. And then go like this, and then go like that. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> like that move, I didn't plan it. I didn't even know what the sure. what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But it was perfect though, mm-hmm. and it would come in the perfect times. So there is one perfect like order. There is one truth. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in order to get to that, like probably like a dancer too, in order to get to it, you can't make it happen. And I'm thinking like maybe there's there's an aspect of, yeah, maybe this the, everything is ordered. Uh, you know, the quadrant model shows that everything is ordered. But at the same time, there needs to be some sort of flow, some sort of like variable, variable random quality yeah. to it in order for Because if, if you're a robot, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, those that gets to these conversations fate and free will yeah. and stuff like that which is um, like always interesting <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's a conversation you can't really finish you can't, you can't finish it yeah. <laughs> but we'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave it at that because this one this one gets really complex but uh-huh. but yeah but so Nersinga let's, let's just talk a little bit about like mm-hmm. I'm just gonna talk about mm-hmm. some philosophical topics that I think okay. that, that we can go through so mm-hmm. one would be I'm going to try to intuit what, what's the best one to start with. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking consciousness. Mm-hmm. What is consciousness? Um, first, I would say that whatever I'm like on a topic like that, I don't want to sound as if I am quantifying the whole thing yeah but just saying like contributing something to that in terms of um the way i think of it and sort of easy points of reference to sort of um you know categorize to some extent um I would say at the basis, the principle of consciousness or the notion of consciousness is, um, this other word, sentience, we say, or sensation, okay. just in a, in a crude sense that the capacity to feel is, is a pretty, like, simple cornerstone concept to to start from okay if you if you talk you know this plastic pick and we say 
why why does you know even people that are like very empiric minded and say things like consciousness are just abs like I don't I don't know how they would say it but you know byproducts of chemical combinations or something like that yeah then uh even still the most empiric minded person is acknowledging a distinction between what we would say matter and consciousness that something with no visible sentience is a distinct category from what we call conscious or living beings the distinction between life and death <laughs> is regarded as important even by the most material minded person yeah because where you have sensation for feeling, and that can be plants, animals as well, they have that sentient baseline. Then from feeling, individual feeling, uh, you then from there you have preference. So even a plant, the roots of a tree... If you have a tree growing here and you have a stream on one side and you have drier land on the other, mm. the tree, which has a very limited consciousness, we would say, or at least in terms of the Vedic scriptures, <coughs> recognize that trees are also conscious, animals and other... It's, it's what's it's called constricted consciousness. It's not It's not as developed as human consciousness but there's still consciousness there okay there's there's a distinction between a living tree and a dead tree right (laughs) and so if you dig up the roots of a tree you'll see that the tree which doesn't have any noticeable faculty of discretion you can't talk to it whatever but still the roots grow towards the water you see what i'm saying yeah or you know okay okay there's some there's some innate function of preference in that sense. The tree understands in some capacity that to thrive and survive, I need water, I need light. The branches will grow towards the light, the roots will grow towards the water. So wherever there's even very limited expression of consciousness, there's still uh, preference preference comes with awareness so where there's capacity for sentience the next thing you're going to see is the capacity or the innate tendency to have preference and how that preference is expressed is generally uh, in its most crude form the struggle for existence any any animal, any plant, any human, it's most uh, innate preferences are going to be regarding survival. Yeah. You need suitable conditions to live. You need food, you need shelter, <clears throat> these things. So, when it comes to human consciousness... The, the scope of where human consciousness can exhibit preference is much larger than other forms of consciousness. Yeah. So that opens up the question of 
metaphysics and other types of spiritual inquiries which we don't find amongst animals yeah, and lesser saying. forms of consciousness so that we know of yeah that, that we know of yeah and and you know you can um you know make the argument that there's room for a lot of development relative to the species but like you know you see monkeys they learn sign language it's like even their conscious ability and discretion and preference can be enhanced with some education and some different opportunities like i was just watching a thing about this monkey that the owners got it when it was three days old it they it learned how to brush its teeth mm. it learned how to watch tv it learned how to drive a car it learned they know how to sign language itself. too right sign language all these things so it's like there's one that like learned four words i remember because okay. it was four but yeah like, i'm I saw a documentary about one of the first chimps they taught sign language. Yeah. And they were like, it wasn't exactly conversational language, but, and it was funny because they were like the longest string of words it ever put together. And then they like translated it. It was quite funny because it's what you'd expect a monkey to say. And it was like, me eat banana, banana, me eat banana. <laughs> it's basically like, give me a banana. <laughs> but, um, it says baboons can learn how to work out when a four-letter word is real English and when it's nonsense. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but but so just we'll take the basic idea and say that with consciousness comes life. So the distinction between something that's living and dead, that's traced to consciousness. Huh. With that same principle of consciousness, there's some innate capacity for feeling in general we'll just call it that and then with feeling comes preference and with preference comes the innate preferences regarding survival now past that because if you according to the scriptures if I just reference the Vedas they say if, if a person has human consciousness they have the faculties for spiritual inquiry for questions of existence who am i where have i come from why am i suffering what is happiness what is true happiness what happens after death that all these types of more philosophical questions they're possible in human consciousness where either they're not possible or in a very very limited way in animal consciousness but I think the important point is that just like using a monkey as an example, monkeys have the capacity to learn more communication, how to interact with humans, how to satisfy their survival needs by communicating with humans in different ways. And that can be enhanced and enriched by training. So it's the same thing with humans. Humans have capacity for spiritual inquiry for spiritual thought, for philosophical thought, and a much larger scope. But generally speaking, it has to be brought out through training or through some system. Because a human, even though that potential is there for that developed consciousness, humans can also just live, as the scriptures say, like animals. <laughs> if we just live to satisfy the base necessities of survival, food, shelter, comfort, 
and we just find more and more sophisticated ways to do that without ever uh, taking it further to ask questions about existence or metaphysical things, then we're just basically operating in the strata of animal consciousness just with much more tools and sophistication. Mm -hmm. So that potential for spiritual inquiry is what distinguishes the the value of human consciousness from animal consciousness. And if it's not used for that purpose, then it remains animalistic. (coughs) And even though it's in a much more neatly packaged form. (laughs) So humans have a cerebral cortex. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's what the scientists are saying, uh, you know, gives the advantage in terms Mm -hmm. of like thinking capacity and, Mm -hmm. Now, when I was looking at Sridhar Maharaj's subjective consciousness thing, yeah, he's mm-hmm. saying that the mind is is primary, the mm-hmm. mind of God or whatever, mm-hmm. and and that's what's first. And, and I look at it like the world of forms, and yeah, there's differences in in our cortexes and stuff. But the way I see it is, there is a divine context behind all of that. Sure, I mean, so, sometimes that's you know sometimes people say the the brain is the physical component. And the mind is more of a metaphysical thing. Yeah. So it's like, again, the mind is where feelings, discretion, preference, all these things are, uh, how do you say, like, I'm trying to think. If you think of uh, maybe a computer, like a computer has raw physics to it. You have your circuit boards and you have your mechanics, your electronic mechanics that make a computer function. But when the computer is put in the hand of someone, they search music, they search recipes, they search for shopping they search how to repair their car so like all these more nuanced interests are really what the computer is meant for Mm. like the physical parts of a computer the circuit boards and this and the other that's just like the raw materials but unless they are facilitating the more unique or the more personalized interest then just the raw like, say you have a perfectly working computer, but no one uses it. No one uses it to accomplish any goal or fulfill any desire or, you know, whatever research or anything like that. The value of just the the plastic and the metal and the wires is not being realized. It's potential, but it's not serving any meaningful purpose. So when that, when those physical ingredients are used in a way to further individualize interest of the user mm-hmm. that's what makes it valuable so if you think of the idea of the brain as a computer it's the physical components your different lobes or whatever I don't, I don't know the terms of the brain you know much better cerebral cortex whatever yeah. these are like the physical components of the computer Yeah, but we would say from our standpoint of how the scriptures describe it that 
the soul, or actually not just the brain, just the body as a whole yeah. is, is a vehicle, a machine. When the body is inhabited by a soul, the soul brings consciousness. So sentience, preference, desire, all these individualized interests and desires that utilize the physical machine of the body and make it valuable. And so it's the way Shilashimaj and subjective evolution talks about the mind is he says it's like the link between the soul which is purely spiritual and the the mundane vehicle of the body the mind is like the link that is the proxy for the soul so the mind in itself isn't necessarily a spiritual thing but it's a subtle force which enables the soul to interact with the physical body or something like that if that yeah so you know it's kind of interesting I was listening to this lecture on uh, like the Na- Native Americans okay. or American Indians mm-hmm. the reason why I don't say Native Americans sometimes is it kind of like a loaded term because some people say like or like the idea of everything is Krishna is like who's native mm-hmm. to where like mm-hmm. but we'll just say Native Americans but okay. anyways they, they said that uh, <clears throat> that every that even animals would have like the same level of consciousness that we have mm-hmm. but they just can't speak so that's similar I would say and I'm you know some of these things I'm saying some are my personal observations, insights, yeah. opinions, whatever, and other things are st- statements of the scriptures, which I regard yeah. as as valid. Huh. Um, but by the scriptures, the perspective is that the soul, the innate fundamental principle of the soul that inhabits an animal body, that inhabits a human body, that inhabits ethereal bodies that we don't see, but according to the scriptures, they also exist. That inhabits plant bodies. Fundamentally, that that soul principle, the Atma, is the same regardless. The, the idea of samsara or transmigration of the soul is that that soul is what powers a body. So the Atma soul, or the Jivatma, that inhabits an elephant body or inhabits an ant body and animates it and gives it life, Yeah, that's fundamentally the same thing. The soul that's inhabiting an ant body at one point in space and time in a future life can inhabit an elephant body or can inhabit a human body or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, so just to draw a correlation there from the scriptures, say yes, fundamentally all souls are the same, not in the sense that they are the same soul, uh-huh. but it's the same principle, it's the same individualized unit of consciousness that animates one life form, it's the same principle that's animating another life form, and depending on karma, you can find yourself in any life form, anything you see on you know, animal planet, in the deep sea, crazy aquatic life forms that look like alien life forms, <laughs> the soul that's in a human body can inhabit that body in a future life and vice versa. So in that sense, we would say that all souls have the same consciousness or have the same potential for conscious expression, but depending on the life form that you're in, 
at any particular point due to your karma, that that life form will either constrict or expand the uh, capacity. The capacity, exactly. Thank you of what that conscious soul can express. So human life in particular is given a lot of importance because human life in particular is where the soul has the best opportunity for spiritual inquiry and pursuit. Like so, humans, yeah, yeah, definitely, okay. And But that's something that has to be cultured. That's something that has to be sought out. It's not like an involuntary thing that will happen on its own. It's something where we have to exhibit some effort and some interest to, to culture that. What's kind of really fascinating to me is there's this person named like Paul Churchill, or okay. I think it's Churchill, it could be Churchland, let's just say Paul Churchland, but, okay. and, and some other ones, like I think it was Daniel Dennett, and they suggest that conscious, there is no consciousness, right. that that's just like a, that's an illusion, mm-hmm. and it's really all physical. Mm-hmm. But, and then I was listening to like Sam Harris talk about, he has a book on consciousness, he was saying that mm-hmm. seems kind of like crazy, because right. well, all we really know for certain is that we're conscious. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah, and if you say this is an illusion, it's like an illusion is kind of like, you know, that question if a tree falls in the forest and there's no, nothing with auditory capacity to hear it, yeah. does it make a sound? You, we've all heard this, you know, this question. It, before, do, right? it doesn't make a sound because right. the sound is just a, is a epiphenomena of, of your, exactly. of it, your it, hair it might, it might move moves air airwaves yeah. in the same way that would be registered of sound yeah. but if there's no faculty to receive it it doesn't so so illusion what is the corresponding faculty that that validates the experience of illusion you see what i'm saying yeah that's consciousness yeah. illusion means a misperception of consciousness you see what i'm saying yeah you can't have illusion without a conscious being that is under illusion or that's being affected by that illusion. It's it's this quote unquote sound waves with no ears in you know, in that sense. If you say illusion exists and consciousness doesn't exist, mm-hmm. it's like saying sound waves exist but there's no ears to hear them. It, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like a catch twenty two. So so sound exists because ears register it. So illusion exists because there's a conscious unit <laughs> that is affected by it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like biocentric, and I have to check out this book by Lanza. It's called like a biocentric thing. Like, there is no universe without the observer. Yeah, absolutely. And and this in the way the quadrant model works is the human is you know made in the image of God, the, mm-hmm. the 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 cross or quadrant, and and without the human aspect of it, everything is like one. And the human is so essential, the observer. Mm-hmm. And it's like in a dream, though. Like, I, and I, I didn't really get through the whole book by mm-hmm. Sridhar Maharaj, but he was talking about, like, when you, that, yes, it's an illusion. The mind is even an illusion, but it, Krishna is behind it all. Right. But the mind's illusion, the, this is, this is the physical reality, that's an illusion, okay. It's like a dream. It, mm-hmm. It's real in a sense, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it's like a dream. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, think, of, then think of a dream. It's like, from a very raw scientific point of view, do dreams exist? Yes, they exist mm-hmm. 
and it really if you want to get into it like they exist as much as any physical object exists yeah but it's it's a purely subjective experience uh-huh. and so what is portrayed in the dream might not be real but the fact that the phenomenon of dreaming exists is as real as any other physical attribute so you know that, and that that's uh I might be going a different direction of where you were going. Sorry about that. No, go ahead. Um, that, you know, that's an argument that, and, and I don't know, I, I don't really follow science so much. Yeah. I, I, little things make it through. I catch it on YouTube or whatever. But it seems like quantum things and science is getting more towards what looks like metaphysics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're making the argument that you know I'm assuming a lot of those people come from the school of like raw empirical thought yeah they were they they stuck to a very physical empirical approach to research that they just dug deep enough to realize like we have to confront the metaphysical side of this to have any integrity because there's components also that don't that aren't as constrained to raw physical perception that are real just like dreams are real what's yeah. portrayed in the dream may not be real but the phenomenon of dreaming is real mm-hmm. and and um but yeah just say like so say if you if you say you know empiric data that can be validated by sense perception that's all I recognize if someone takes a hard line stance I don't believe in anything I can't see I don't believe in anything I can't hear I don't believe in anything I can't smell touch or taste yeah, that's the only basis for research that I recognize as valid because those are tangible truths yeah. what if that person's blind what if that person's deaf you know if what you are relying on is the cornerstone for hard factual evidence is inherently codependent on a sentient person observing them you see what I'm saying yeah so so to take a hard line stance that I only recognize empiric data and consciousness is an abstract matter of opinion that some crazy lazy people thought of because they couldn't do the real science you're shooting yourself in the foot all your the basis of your data that you recognize is dependent on a sentient participant experiencing them it kind of boils down to semantics too yeah, but, but I was like, but yeah, I know what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, to say if someone, to say if someone is has impaired senses, say if people are born blind, yeah. what an empiric science person sees with their eyes that they recognize as valid, that will only ever be mythology to a blind person. You see what I'm saying? You can explain yeah. it all day long. It's the equivalent of telling them about pink dragons and everything else. They don't have they don't have that personal sense perception. Green ideas. Right. So it's like, I guess just my point in saying all that is that sense perception is relying on perception, which is relying on consciousness. So to your point of what Sam Harris said, it's like, it's counterproductive because everything that you're recognizing is valid. You only have belief that it even exists because you're conscious in the first place. Consci- so Shilashita much makes that point. So 
Consciousness is the first thing. That's the first thing you know before you know anything else. Yeah. So to eliminate that <laughs> and then somehow claim validity of other things that you only know exist because of consciousness. Because of consciousness, yeah. yeah. So, but anyway. It's, yeah. yeah, and then people will say, okay, dreaming, that's just, you know, firings of the neurons going crazy and random mm-hmm. processes and, and somehow your brain interpreting mm-hmm. it. And then there's those people like – there's this famous Chinese philosopher who said, okay, how do I know that I'm not ju- – you know, I woke up from a dream of being a butterfly. How do I know that right now I'm not a butterfly dreaming of being a human? Right. Yeah. And, and you know, people – the brain in a vat philosophy mm-hmm. by the philosophers would say, okay, maybe we're just like – or like the matrix. We're, we're like brains right. in a vat and we're not – and we're just having like a dream right now. Mm-hmm. But really it's – in like the matrix world where we're sleeping in some some size sort of, uh, some sort of pod or whatever mm-hmm. or we're like god having a dream or you know there's like but yeah, at least I mean, that, would, we, that would be the the vedic thing yeah. could be summarized like that yeah. what we experience as what's called we call the material world or the mayic you know the word maya you're familiar with maya yeah 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 so maya, maya means illusion illusion yeah so uh According to the Vedic version, <laughs> this is all a dream in a sense of the supreme being. Mm. This entire universe and many, many, many millions of universes are what's the form of Vishnu, Mahavishnu, or Karnadakashai Vishnu. He's sleeping yeah. in an ocean where the material ingredients that comprise this world are in a dormant state and when he uh, dreams it activates so the the soul element the what we call unconsciousness the individual souls they animate the material ingredients that are inert they're like inert matter in and of themselves they have no initiative they have no force but when they are combined with uh, the potency of what we call jiva souls or atma then when those two combine the, the material ingredients are animated by the souls that are present in them present in it so Mahavishnu is sleeping and he sort of in a dream (laughs) he combines the spiritual soul potency with the inert material potency and when these two combine that's what brings creation about Mm -hmm. and um, so it's real in the sense that all the ingredients that comprise it exist, but the perceptions of the souls in that experience is illusion, generally. Um, yeah. To okay. say that, you know, we, like we were talking earlier about misidentification of self, misidentification yeah. of prospect, the souls that are mixed up in that experience, they, they if they lack true knowledge of themselves as a soul distinct from matter 
then their conscious experience is completely captured or captivated by their relationship with matter. That's all that they are aware of. So how the world is perceived and experienced in that state is ultimately illusory. It's an inaccurate assessment of oneself and the world around them. So it's an illusion that is taking place within a dream of the supreme being, something like that. <laughs> and then people ask, you know, well, then where did the supreme supreme being come from? Mm. Was it eternal? Is mm. it right? What, what's the response to that? Yeah, we say eternal. Yeah. That's that. If we say that, it's it's another kind of question that can be almost. Uh, it sounds like wordplay. Yeah. But if someone says, well, everything has to have a cause. Say, this had to have a cause before it. This had to have a cause before it. So if you claim that this thing is the cause, then then I'm going to say, what caused that? It's kind of like kids, you know. You talk to a kid, and I think everyone goes through a phase at some point where they're like, why? 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 (laughs) And, and, uh... And so, but if someone says everything has to have a cause, then we can say on the other side, okay, sure. That means that there must be a supreme cause. If everything can be traced to a cause, then there must be an original cause that initiated everything. If you, uh, what do you call, reverse engineer a cause and effect sequence, it has to go to a cause. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, in the same vein as saying everything has to have a, a cause. Sorry. Um, in the same vein of saying everything has to have a cause, then you also have to consider the idea that there might be a supreme cause which caused everything. Yeah. Because otherwise you're saying everything I said because... Even Aristotle would call it the, like the prime mover. Right, yeah. right. If you say everything I said because until it leads me to the understanding that there was no cause, that's that's a very awkward argument to make. Yeah. <laughs> so the only other option is everything I said because, which leads me to the conclusion that there's a prime cause. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, Aristotle talked about that this primary cause, a prime mover. Mm-hmm. But then also then you have other Greek philosophers like... Uh, uh, Zeno, Zeno said uh, that movement itself is an illusion. So and then and then you it, like uh, the the physics is becoming metaphysics nowadays. So we were talking about the other day all the quantum physics stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. certain everybody knows about. Like, I should just I'm, I should call. Oh, okay. so yeah, I don't know if you want to pause it for a second or just like. So oh, I'll, I'll just you know I'll just post the, uh, okay. I'll just stop it here and then we'll continue. Let me just call back because they might need to. Yeah, so physics become metaphysics and that like. Well, Zeno would talk about that uh, movement's an illusion, but al- although he said that, like, physicists nowadays or mathematicians say that his paradox, he had four paradoxes, one of them was that movement's illusion. They say that they know the mathematics behind that, and now that they know calculus, it's not actually accurate movement. It's not an illusion. But but regardless, you know, in terms of physics becoming metaphysics, we have, like, these physicists nowadays are saying that even though there appears to be a lot of things in the existence like somehow all the energy in existence if you like add up all the centrifugal and all the different motions and everything it all cancels out the zero 
So it's like there, mm. it, there's there's energy, but there's no energy. Mm. And it's kind of like there, there's many things, but there's nothing type of idea. Mm. And the way I see that is, is, you know, people taking this stuff literally, but I see it, it's like a metaphor. Like mm. in, in a dream, there's symbolism everywhere. Mm. And and that's what the universe is showing these physicists. Okay, well, what what is a deeper aspect that it's trying to, you know, there's some sort of poetic, mm. like reality is like an art form. It's like sure. a poetry. Well, I mean, think of you know, just the first quick example that comes to my mind is like, this expression someone say you've done nothing with your life <laughs> yeah it's like there's a context for that there's a context for where that could be accurate mm. but if in another sense you say you've done nothing I mean people breathing they're eating they're sleeping yeah like the fact that someone's alive there's a certain amount of activity that's already implied at a minimum yeah. just to even do nothing <laughs> there's yeah, a yeah. certain amount of movement going on so yeah in a certain context, the idea means something. Mm. In another context, so again, back to that conversation we had the night about lenses. You look through yeah. the, you look through an X-ray lens that shows you the skeleton structure of the body. You look through a MRI or a CAT scan; it'll sh- show you different layers of the same object. Yeah. So, dealing with the universe or physics and metaphysics or whatever. There's different lenses where if you look through it, you see it one way. If you look through another lens, you see it another way. So when someone is saying something like, you know, movement is an illusion. Yeah. There can be a context where a certain lens, where if you look through it, that's a meaningful thought. That's an insightful thought that, that might have application. Yeah, but if you don't give the accurate context, or if you have, or if you have the wrong context, it leaves room for all kinds of confusion and disagreement and all these things. So, I feel like you know, contradictory statements or whatever, it's important to try to understand the context, and even sometimes someone that may say it, say something they might have an inaccurate context. They might be saying something where the idea they're trying to convey is not correct mm-hmm. because they have a wrong context, but someone else that understands the subject better or deeper yeah. will hear that idea and understand the context where it has value. Yeah. So so that's, you know, that's an important, uh, just as a general principle thing to factor in, especially when you get into all sorts of, like, nuanced discussions is like because you know I, I think of the scriptures of Vedic scriptures there's many statements that would appear contradictory but yeah, yeah. if you if you look into it or you understand the context and that's one of the great things of why uh, commentators are given a lot of importance in the Vedic tradition like oh you read that book but who's commentary mm-hmm. because that's going to give you so much context as to the discussion and so, you know, it's amazing to read things and hear things discussed that originally feels like a puzzle. Like, what? There's two, two impossible ideas that conflict. And then when you hear the context surrounding it, you're like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. And the opposite idea makes sense okay. in this light. So, so that's just the responsibility that anyone that takes interest in topics like this they have to because if we get in the habit of like 
attaching ourselves really strongly to one idea and then only see in that context everything we hear is going to be in a different context and we're like everything is wrong everything's wrong so it's you know we want to be to some extent broad-minded and try to find what particular angle of vision someone might have been trying to articulate yeah and give and be open-minded enough to see the context they're coming from to see why they saw it that way or something yeah and and that's that's kind of like what the what the quadrant model is about in a lot of ways and it's not like it's not like i i tried to manufacture this because i wanted to reconcile irreconcilable things but right, like i just right. i just give one example would be like i look at the they call it the four major cults in in christianity okay. but but like a cult there's there's four levels of religion actually like one's okay. cult one's denomination one sect and one's religion that's according okay. to becker's model or whatever okay. but the four major cults they they said the fir- the first one is Christian science and they teach that everything is mine that there is no matter matter is just okay. an illusion okay. Elohim is mind and mm-hmm. the tetragrammaton God is an illusion of matter that's okay. what they teach okay. then you have the second quadrant one which would be the seventh day Adventist and they teach that there is mind and matter okay. then you have the J witnesses who teach kind of like that it's all matter they don't okay. believe in an afterlife Really, it's all physical Really, and they don't believe in the soul, that. really. This is Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. They don't believe in heaven, nothing like that. They believe that that in the end people will be resurrected who were who were J witnesses okay. on a perfect earth, okay. but there's no heaven or hell. Okay. And they, they, everything everything in the Bible that says anything about heaven or hell or anything is a metaphor. A metaphor, okay. And then there's the um, finally the the Mormons. Okay. And Mormon is kind of like the different fourth. The fourth is always different. Okay. <laughs> okay. So so the way I see it is mm-hmm. it's like we have the different lenses like you said and, and mm-hmm. I like the metaphor that you gave me the other night where you're saying like yeah there's the MRI, there's mm-hmm. the CAT scan, there's x-ray. the x-ray and right. you have these different lenses and they all show you something different. And it's like the elephant idea, you know, mm-hmm. one guy's exactly. one guy's yeah, yeah. feeling the tail, one guy's feeling the uh-huh. And it's all different views, but there's one unifying foundation behind it all, and that's the quadrant. It's kind of a, it's it's kind of like to me a beautiful type of yeah. idea, and but but going back to the to the metaphysical aspect, and then mm-hmm. we'll we'll talk more about that though. Is that's how people say that that's how scientists try to say that something could come from nothing is they say that there is still nothing, and they say it's like the biggest mm-hmm. free lunch ever. They said there was some sort of quantum fluctuation, mm-hmm. and. And but and then how could there be energy coming? But they say there still is no energy. It's just all cancels out. Mm-hmm. So there still is nothing. So how does something come from nothing? Well, there was never anything, it, or at least mm-hmm. there's something, but it's all cancels out into mm-hmm. nothing. That's mm-hmm. how they try to reconcile that. Yeah, I mean, it's a rational. Yeah, attempt. And, and then the thing is, I don't know to go too deep into it because I, you know, like I've said before, I, I don't study other schools of thought so much. Yeah. Like, I hear things, but even how I hear them can be through someone else that agrees or doesn't agree. So when I speak on something, I am always want to remember that. Like, if I'm like, oh, these people say this, and then someone that actually believes in it, I'd be like, what the fuck, we don't say that. So, like, bear that in mind. But, like, you know, you could say the idea of Big Bang or whatever. Because it's like, you know, there, there's, there's this notion in science on one level where it's like, 
nothing is miraculous. It's all explainable yeah. by cause and effect sequences of observable matter. Yeah. And it's like, okay. So someone ascribes to that philosophy, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... And then you press them on it, and they're like, oh, well, it's the Big Bang, Big Bang. So then they come to a conclusion that's completely miraculous. Oh, yeah. Just oh, yeah. It's, so it's like, it's like, all right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't want to drill too deeply into that, but just it's interesting to see because then it's like. A quantum fluctuation somehow randomly brought about, like, the whole right, universe. Right. And, yeah. then, and then, like, yeah, the, the, but then it's like. But in their mind, religious people are fanatics because they believe in crazy shit that has no bearing on reality. And it's like six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> uh, but anyway, sorry, I kind of segued there. I forgot what. So, but yeah, but do you want to explain mm-hmm. a little bit? Like, I was thinking like sectarianism and stuff. Okay. And, and you're talking the other day, I guess you're talking mm-hmm. with, with Echo the other day mm-hmm. about like sectarianism and, and the reconciling things and how the different lenses. Do you want to just talk about that at all? That's that's a, I mean maybe a little complicated, but not complicated, but just a lot of factors to consider. I mean I think there's there's obviously the common notion of sectarianism that it's a very negative context, like fanaticism and prejudice yeah. and like almost like an innate fear to anyone that isn't in our group or thinks like us I don't want my ideas challenged like there's like a knee jerk reaction and all that stuff and that's well documented throughout history on all continents and all religious forms have some embarrassing members of the family that make everyone look bad (laughs) Uh, and so from there from that as like a bottom of the barrel standard then you have higher than that would be truth seekers more un- unprejudiced more open minded like you know like I follow where the truth leads me I'm not bound to a group I'm not constricted to some tradition I don't blindly hate people <laughs> I want to find truth wherever truth may be had and if I find things that appear true or that are you know common truths that even across different groups of beliefs religious or otherwise there's certain common threads of truth that people even separated by space and different places or time different points in history but these common truths are appreciated in one form or another by people that had no contact with each other then you get to this broader thinking approach of like I want to find truth or whatever it's much better than the first one it's much better than the sectarian like sort of blind defensive you know whatever but the point I was making to echo is that one downside that I feel can be there with that broad notion of truth seeking and you know first of all to say off the bat it's a very good wholesome place to start from 
if you're going to take an interest in religion, if you're going to take an interest in metaphysics, if you're going to take an interest in philosophy, approach it as a truth seeker. Approach it as an unprejudiced, as much as possible, open-minded. It's a very healthy thing to do. But at the same time, I would say that there's a little bit of catch-22 in that if truth that you're seeking, and if we get to the idea of transcendental truths or metaphysical truths that are not immediately perceived by our physical senses, but they're higher spiritual truths that can be realized through some yoga practice, meditation, whatever it is, something like that. My point to her was like, what if those truths can also, because as much as it's attractive, the notion of universal truth, yeah. all-encompassing, unifying, universal truth. It's very wholesome. Yeah. But at the same time, what if there is potential for very specific, nuanced truths? Yeah. And And so sometimes our instinct to not want to be, uh, what's it called, um, sectarian mm. and confined to these traditions that are seen to make people prejudiced and small-minded <laughs> in, uh, in unfortunate cases. If we don't want our, our reservation to become that, we say, no, I only side with the universal truths, the broad truths. But what if there are metaphysical truths, like I said, I'm kind of repeating myself now, but that are very unique or specified or nuanced. Yeah. There, there should be some openness to... Uh, to how to say that like the gradation the gradation there should be some openness to the possibility that universal truths also have uh, unique Unique, yes. That there's also unique attributes. There's potential for unique and, like I said, specified or nuanced expression from that same higher plane where universal truth is leading you. It also has dynamic and variegated specified nature. Like there's an elephant, but an elephant isn't just all the stomach. Like there's also the leg. Right. And there's also the tail. And these are different separate parts of right, the elephant. Right, right. And, and to say that they're all the, you know, like, okay, let, well, let's try to find, okay, well, at least the leg and the, the stomach, mm. they're all made up of, of cells. Mm. And those cells are made up of corks and, mm. and okay, okay, cool. But still, mm. there's a leg there. Right, there's a leg, there's a stomach, they perform different yeah. functions, they have different feeling, they have different, yeah, so, so it's a bit of, you know... Like, because I, I was saying to her, like, another way of looking at it, and these are somewhat, you know, I haven't read Subjective Evolution in recent years, but somewhat some of the points I remember just as I remember them. And one of the points she was making, he says, like, this world of variety that we experience, yeah. is it more reasonable to think that the source from which everything came is devoid of variety, it's less than it what it produced, or is it more reasonable to think that the source is omnipotent and contains all potential and all capacity of everything that's derived from it? 
You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And and yeah. In that sense, it's he, more he said it's dynamic as opposed to static. Exactly. So if it's dynamic, variegated, and everything we see here is derivative from that original. Like if I have a hundred dollars, I have ten dollars, five dollars, one dollar. They're all contained in the hundred dollar bill. That's one model. The other model is I have zero dollars and a hundred dollars popped out of nothing. Mm-hmm. So the variety of this world would be the hundred dollars, and to say it came from abject poverty is a bit weird. It's more miraculous. Yeah. <laughs> but to say that I had a hundred dollars, and from that hundred dollars, I was able to provide many smaller bill forms that were are already included in that hundred dollars. So that's the idea of like an omnipotent source. We're all potency, all variety, all dynamic all consciousness, all things already existed in a full capacity, and from that full source that possessed all things, all, all potencies, mm-hmm. it created so many subdivisions. Yeah. And, and so, from that point of view, the variety that we experience in this world would be derived from a source where all that variety existed in a greater in a greater degree and yeah so if that's possible then understanding both the universal aspect of that source because it is that if it's the source of everything then it is very universal in nature mm-hmm. <laughs> but at the same time understanding that it's a dynamic potent source with variety humor, yeah. intuition, uh, so many things, nuance, then then there also should be some openness or some method to want to know the unique attributes of that universal source. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so that that I feel would be the, if you think of, Sometimes in the books we read there's an expression perverted reflection. Yeah. That this mundane world is a perverted reflection of a higher spiritual nature. So sectarianism, the perverted reflection of it is like fanaticism and prejudice and all those things, negative attributes associated with sectarianism. Its positive counterpart would be transcendental, variegated, dynamic world where there's again room for preference yeah so yeah, I yeah. prefer this I prefer this I prefer this but it doesn't have but those are preferences that are taking place on the basis of universal truths and they're not the perverted reflection of this world where they're preferences that are basically based on selfish desires and then trying to justify it as something that's universal when it's really just our own Yeah, and, and there's there's room for growth, and it's like dynamic. If there's if there's variety, as right. opposed to to just static uh, homogeneity. Right. And it, it, the way I look at it is like, but the, with the quadrant stuff, it's like a heterogeneous oneness is the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll, I'll give you just a few examples of how this will apply to like sectarianism. Okay. Would be like one example is I was listening to a teaching company course, and this guy was the professor was famous professor talking about like it was a course on religion and 
Mm-hmm. And he was uh, talking about how sociologists say that there's four world religions. A world religion proselytizes and it uh, has like a large area of land. I forget the exact definition, but he said that the first one, well, there's Buddhism, which would be the first quadrant, more mental. The first is always mm-hmm. more mental. Christianity would be the second. That's more about homeostasis and mm-hmm. order. And the third one is is Islam, which is more action-oriented, more ritualistic. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one is Hinduism, which is the transcendent fourth. The fourth mm-hmm. is always like more philosophical. Mm-hmm. And then like another example would be in Hinduism itself, there's four denominations. Mm-hmm. We have the Vaishnava, mm-hmm. Vaishnavites, which worship Vishnu. Mm-hmm. That's like the mode of goodness. Mm-hmm. Then you have the Shaivites, which are worshiping Shiva and in the, in, they call it the mode of ignorance, but mm-hmm. they don't see it as ignorance, but still mm-hmm. it's, they're, they're, they're acting in more, uh, they're, they're not, it, it, I don't want to use the word sinful, but yeah, they're, they're, they're not acting like moral as moral. Um, and then you have the Kali worshipers who are worshiping the goddess and, and they're also kind of acting more, um, immoral, like stereotypically. But again, one way that the anthropologists try to reconcile this is they say that the Kali worshipers and Shiva worshipers were the native Dravidians. And, and it's a remnant of that. And, but again, there's so many different lenses that you could look at through things. And then you have the um, the smartest, which is the fourth one. And they worship in a quincunx formation, which is a quadrant. So you see the, always the quadrant expressing itself as dominant. Surya, the sun god. Shiva, Vishnu, Kali, and um, Ganesha. And that would be the transcendent fourth. So again, we have like, but then and, and then we we're gonna get into this though too. Like, mm-hmm. well, I'll just do one more example, mm-hmm. and we're gonna talk about the perennial idea mm-hmm. that you're you're mentioning. But then one more example would be like in in Judaism we have the four, also in Buddhism there's actually four, mm-hmm. but we get to that later. I wrote those down, but I forget the name. Sorry, Alright, so, yeah, we were talking, okay, so, mm-hmm. I was just listening to a, to an audio book on Buddhism, and the guy was saying how mostly people say there's three branches, there's always a dynamic between number three and number four, but he was saying there's actually a fourth branch of Buddhism, mm-hmm. and I forget the names of the branches, but that's the way that he described it. Then you look at, um, just one more example would be, in Judaism, which isn't technically a world religion, they say, because it doesn't proselytize, it doesn't try to gain converts, but in Judaism, there's also four denominations, and we talked about that before. It was the first one is Reform, then there's Orthodox, then there's Conservative, and then there's the Reconstructionist. And the Reconstructionist is like the different fourth, the one that doesn't seem to fit. But the point is, like, I like it that there's a variety, and I like it that some people are like dogmatic and they stick to the traditions and they hold on to that stuff because now they're maintaining the things, and then you can go there and you can get a different flavor. And I want to, I want the whole gamut. So okay, now I'm 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 immersing myself into this experience, and I'm I'm absorbing this, and I'm taking this perspective in, and this is gonna help me grow. Okay, now I'm gonna check out the reform, and they're they're saying that there's other ways of viewing this. Now let me check out the because and I like that. I like the variety, and I, and I th- and to say like okay, but then also there's there's like there's so many like dynamic complexities. Where I look at the perennialist idea too, where they say, okay, but behind all this, there is one truth. And I do see that. 
Like I could see how you could look at all these these stories and they're all pointing to let's say the flow or the transcendence mm-hmm. of the ego. Mm-hmm. And even like the the orthodox they might be grabbing onto their identities uh mm-hmm. or or you know the the Vaishnavites they might be holding onto an identity but still if you look in the perennial view maybe they are all pointing to the flow. And that's what my grandpa would maybe like mm-hmm. want to look at. That's how he like transpersonal so, psychology so looks I, at. I would, so it's a little different it's not exactly addressing those points but what i would say hearing that what i would relate to that mm-hmm. is so this is tell me if this framing works there's one point about the universal nature of truth and universal nature of potentially a religious system that leads one to understand universal truth so that should be a very encompassing, all-welcoming thing. If you're dealing with universal truth, that is something that is should be beneficial for everyone. If it's universal truth, it's not the property of anyone. It's not the, you know, whatever. It's it's like the sun shines for everyone, Yeah. that type of thing. And then on the other side, there is this, what could be seen as sectarian notion of discrimination that we don't accept these ideas we don't accept these truths we call it this we don't call it that so so that's sort of a dichotomy that you know has to be navigated yeah universal so we could say in the worst form of sectarianism the person doesn't even care for universal truth they just care about whatever has them infatuated with their sect for whatever reason. <laughs> so that's not, we're not going to talk much about that, but we'll just say that's one possible scenario that is seen in the world. Then, then someone will say, well, if you're interested in universal truth, then what's the need for sectarianism at all? Why even have this discernment as to these people are good, these people are bad, this is acceptable, this is unacceptable. If it's universal truth, it should be all welcoming, all inviting. There should be no need to draw these lines of demarcation that alienate people. Yeah. I think that's a very fair point. Yeah. But then the point of gradation comes in. Mm -hmm. Because universal truth may be all-encompassing, it may be relevant to everyone, it may be beneficial to everyone, but just like in other physical universal truths, like gravity in this world that affects everyone, there's different throughout history there's different degrees of depth of understanding gravity yeah so even though it's a universal truth that involves everyone not all assessments of it or how it operates or what our relationship with it is are at the same level of depth or accuracy they they work on different scales like right and and there might be and and there might you know, one way is a hard line stance, like these are the good ones, these are the bad ones. But yeah. more, more applicable than that is the idea of gradation. Yeah. So, like we talk about gravity, mm. yeah, it, it was there was a historical progression. Hello. Yeah. Yeah, hello?
on top of that, he's like legally blind. I mean, it's just oh, for real. Yeah, it's just one thing after another. It's I'm always, you know, he'll call me. What the fuck? I'm like, all right, I try, whatever experience I have, if it helps, I try to offer it. <laughs> anyway, so I will, oh, yeah. so yeah. so we're talking about. Yeah, so I'll give just one example. Is in, in we're talking about gravity. There was one time when classical mechanics was used, and that's yeah. for for and and this works. This this works on on describing objects, and that's in for objects that are larger than ten to the ninth meters and moving at a speed less than three times far less than three times ten to the eight meters per second, and that works. But then when you get to uh to a smaller to smaller things like atoms mm-hmm. like that are moving at a at a slow speed then you have to use quantum mechanics mm-hmm. then when you get to things that are large but moving at a super fast speed then you have to use relativistic mechanics okay. then when you get to things that are that are near or less than like that that are small but using going at a fast speed then you have to use quantum field theory there's four okay. of them and and each of them is different but it's also like it's not like you can just do whatever you want right there's one truth Mm-hmm. But on the different scales, yeah, there's these different things, and and they're all true, but they're mm-hmm. different. But at the same time, it's not just it's so. There's a thing called the pl- the pluralistic paradox or paradox mm-hmm. of pluralism, where people say, mm-hmm. okay, every there is no truth, everything mm-hmm. is true. Mm-hmm. But then that's the paradox of that is then you say, okay, but that's not true, and then they say no, but that but you're wrong. Mm-hmm. But then they're saying you're wrong, but they say that everybody's right. Mm-hmm. right. There is one truth. Right. So, I, yeah, so I would say again, you know, there's one truth, but that another factor, because then that comes the idea of static and dynamic. There's one yeah. truth, okay. It, if it's a static one truth, that's one type of idea. Mm-hmm. If it's one truth, but it's dynamic. Yeah. It's still one truth, but it still has a lot of, like you were talking about gravity, you have to apply different methods of understanding gravity to do it accurately at different scales. Yeah. So there's one truth, but it's dynamic. It takes takes like different forms and different configurations and different. Right. But but that's a part of the truth. Right, exactly. So, So the idea that there's one truth, if that intuitively leads one to think in terms of a static one truth that's misleading yeah so if there's one truth but it's dynamic and then there's a gradient or a gradation with Mm. how that one truth can be understood at different degrees of depth or accuracy Mm. so in a sense we're still dealing with the universal nature of truth but once you factor in more relevant components then you lead to I don't want to say sectarianism but you lead to we'll say difference of opinion <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and so and so one idea is that uh, you know the black and white idea our ideas are good everyone else's ideas are bad but broader than that if you have the notion of gradation you can say Everything is on the map somewhere. Mm. We're not eliminating something as not being true and we're being hyper-sectarian. We're saying that there's one universal truth which is being approached by different methods, different 
degrees of depth and everything is on the map but there's also a gradation in that map yeah that that there's a gradation like someone understands like newton understood gravity when the apple fell on his head yeah. but what you just described there are four levels of like he only understood it in that one level right exactly so are we gonna say newton was wrong i'm not saying newton's wrong his his he opened the door for what later became the four whatever yeah um, the four domains of physics right so so if we say everything is on a map, yeah. But there's also gradation, so Newton's understanding isn't wrong, but it's also not all encompassing. Yeah. So what's understood now may have been derived from Newton's realization, but it's also gone beyond what he understood at the time. So. I guess the point in saying all that is that. Um, when it comes to the topic of universal universality of truth mm. and sectarian approach to truth just generally speaking we can say that the universal nature is very important very good yeah at the same time there is room for what may look like a sectarian approach which is actually just trying to accurately detail the nuance and gradation of universal truth. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That that's the healthy version of what sectarianism is yeah. a misrepresentation of. Mm -hmm. Like they're filling all the niches. Mm. And and but we like one thing that we know in, in terms of right now we're focusing on religion, let's say mm. religion has characteristics mm -hmm. and absolute qualities and standards mm -hmm. and, and, and and one example is morality. It's focused on morality and how to get people to get along, having the right beliefs, be belonging. And it's, it's, it's designed to create, to adjust people's behavior and create a harmonious situation in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And we see within the mytho or mythologies or stories, or if you want to see them as true, like, like true mm -hmm. stories, whatever, but we see within them this, uh, this kind of grappling with this. What what is right? What is the right way to behave? What was like morality? And you see that within the in the Hinduism, where we have the four denominations, and the but even within on the stories, they're all pointing towards some higher level of of being, and and we do see like one truth that it's pointing to. So even if even the Surya worshippers, they have to admit, okay, well let's look at the actual stories of the Vedas and of the Vishnu Puran and Shiva Puran, and what are they saying? Well, in all those stories. These these sun worshippers they're, they're gonna have to acknowledge okay well in this one story the Sagar was worshiping the sun but then Brahma came and told him you know after the sun worshippers got in trouble Brahma came and, and they were killed Brahma came and said okay well you could bring them back to life if you stop worshiping the sun and you start worshiping Shiva mm -hmm. so we're seeing a progression toward worshiping individual phenomena toward worshiping Shiva who then the Shiva Mahabharata later says is one with Vishnu so there's kind of like reconciliations going on and moving toward like mm -hmm. one maybe the non-dual truth or moving toward like a morality that's be that's beyond like morality in terms of we we know there's problems with morality and that people will say like the good i would paul says the good i would i do not but that which i would not and i end up doing and that's the idea that mm -hmm. you can try to be doing good but you're not really doing good and that might be like a surya worshiper he's or a surya worshiper is trying to get power and stuff but then mm -hmm. he gets himself in trouble so now let's move at least towards shiva who's mm -hmm. moving toward vishnu and the the well, oneness. Yeah, so this this is gradation, and just from the, uh, 
explanation of a perspective, yeah. at least as best I understand it, that the morality, if you want to call it that, of all forms of worship can be graded against certain principles. So if you believe in the idea of karma, action and reaction, or some accountability, yeah. that I as a sentient being am interacting with other sentient beings and other components of nature that that I don't own or that I'm not the sole owner of. So just like when you go, if you rent a hotel room and you trash it, they're going to give you a bill for all the things you broke. It's like, yeah, that wasn't yours to trash. Now you got to pay for it. Something like that. So we can think the whole world is like a hotel room. We're living here and it belongs to, if you, from the Vaishnav idea, the, the beginning of Ishapanishad, everything animate and inanimate in this world belongs to Vishnu. Yeah. So how we interact with that is going to determine the karmic level of culpability. If I am very selfish, exploitive, and destructive, and the things that I do give me pleasure, but they harm other living creatures, yeah. and they also destroy environment that's a shared space with other living creatures, that type of karma is called vikarma in the scriptures. It means like bad karma. Just in the West, we call it bad karma. Huh. Things that shouldn't be done. Things that are harmful to oneself and others. The karmic repercussion that it creates is destructive to others and oneself. The, 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 the difficulty is that if someone is selfish, we don't experience the destructive consequences of our selfish actions immediately. Primarily, if I steal or if I do something, it's harming the other person first, and I don't care about that. The, the karmic reaction is going to ensure that I also pay that price in the future, but I may not be able to connect the dots. That my action here created this reaction here. So that's called ignorance. So souls that are covered in ignorance are constantly creating harmful karmic sequences that they <laughs> suffer for, but they don't... They can't connect the fact that they're suffering that reaction because of something they did. Yeah. And so, generally, as a, if you want to call it morality, of the scripture is that things that you are going to suffer for in the future, because morality sometimes is seen as like a way to get people to get along, where it's like, you know, do unto others as you would want them to do, something like that. It's like, it's regulating a selfish nature so that it can cohabitate peacefully with other people. So yeah. everyone has some shared responsibility to not act selfishly so that they can collectively... So someone might say, oh, well, morality is just for someone else's benefit. Like, mm -hmm. I want to be about me. I yeah. don't have to consider other people. But from the scriptural point of view, say, no, morality, is, as it might be called... It's not about someone else's benefit. <laughs> it's about you not doing harm to yourself. Because if you're harming others, you're going to be karmically accountable to that harm. So by harming others, you're also harming yourself. Yeah. So the basis of morality is not necessarily, it doesn't have to be seen as something that's meant to benefit other people or benefit. 
it can also be a very selfish thing in a good way that if you don't want to invite harm upon yourself that's a very selfish desire i don't want anything bad to happen to me but if you have an understanding of the mechanics of the universe then you understand that if I don't want harm to be done to me, I can't also do things that are harmful to others because I'll have to pay that price. Mm. So it becomes more a question of as some, that expression like self-determination, if you've heard that. Yeah. It, it's more about knowledge of self and having a, having a coherent relationship with your own self in eternity. Yeah which should be that can be framed as a very selfish but like a healthy selfish desire like sometimes people are like i need to take care of my health it's not selfish it's like it's responsible yeah. so spiritual health is the same way i need to have a wholesome coherent relationship with my own soul in eternity hmm. the 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 logic and the knowledge that makes that possible can also be seen as because it performs a similar function to what is called morality I don't know I kind of went well I I, I just I'll just like Mm -hmm. add one more thing to that remember we were talking earlier today about Ganesha and I think it's like people are wrestling whether this story you know I I know that the the Vaishnavites or the the Krishna conscious people will say that the story probably really happened although it is in the Shiva Mahaparan so I don't know if they if they Mm -hmm. take that as a bona fide or Mm -hmm. as a uh, what's, what's the word like uh, a legitimate scripture mm-hmm. but in the Shiva Mahabharata there's a story of uh, like like how Ganesha got his his vehicle his va- what do they call the vehicles the Vamanas or? Uh, no, no, not Vimana. Vimana yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the rat there was a rat who was kind of causing uh, pandemonium in an ashram and Ganesha came and he sat on the rat and made it his vehicle and Ganesha represents wisdom. And I think it's an idea that you're going to find in a lot of ashrams and people dealt with this. There's going to be people who have, who are immature and who are using religion in, in ways that are selfish and that are, mm-hmm. and, and, and they have kind of a personality and a persona that is causing negative reactions. And it's mm-hmm. like the mouse ca- causing havoc inside mm-hmm. of the ashram. But with wisdom, with Ganesha, you can you can overcome that, and that's why you know the, the Shiva worshippers say, yeah, first worship Ganesha before you worship any. You first go approach it with wisdom, with a higher level of consciousness, where you're transcending your ego identification. You're in more of a mode of of harmony and oneness, and with with that wisdom, then there's going to be flourishing, and that's when Ganesha sits on the rat. So I mean, you see these types of stories, and and they that that's what the the religions. So there is like, there is an absolute thing that these things are pointing to. Right. You have different cultural backgrounds. You have some tribal medicine from one point in time. You have medicine from this country, that country, whatever, whatever, whatever. But then there's certain universal principles that apply, like the temperature of the body. 98.6 if it's not diseased doesn't matter what your cultural background is doesn't matter what point in time that is is constant a pulse uh, like what they call vital signs yeah there's vital signs for health that even if you're schooled in one school of medicine those are still basic metrics that you use mm. in any in any 
approach. You go to another country, you go here, you go there. Uh, th- those principles still apply. Yeah. So, so I would say the spiritual counterpart to medicine, physical medicine, we would call yoga systems. Okay. And there are certain constants in terms of spiritual principles that are relevant in assessing the value of any religion, philosophy, yoga system, whatever, things like we talked about before, self-identification. Identification with the temporary material body as the self Mm. is like uh, having a high temperature. It doesn't matter what race you are, what country you're from, whatever. If you have a temperature of 100-something degrees, it means that health is just upset. You're not in a healthy state. So whatever your so religion, preference, sect, philosophy is, and I'm saying this from the point of view of how I understand the Vaishya faith, if you identify with the temporary physical body as the self, you're in a state of illusion. That That's a constant regardless of whatever you're calling your belief system that as far as vital signs go that means that something is wrong yeah so so anyway I guess that's just an example but then then you have things like uh, detachment these are another common principle throughout yoga systems Krishna says in Gita says all any yoga process is predicated on some form of detachment if, if you have just complete attachment to the mundane and that's all in all and that rules you there's no meaningful yoga system that's present or that can be used in that state you need some degree of detachment from the mundane to be able to culture spiritual understanding mm-hmm. so things like detachment things like self-identification and other things like that these are like constants that transcend particular belief systems you can kind of they're like vital signs you can look at any belief system and check the vital signs to see you know sort of how it ranks when it's put into a central standard and I add I want to just end it with this and then we I th- I want to do like just more we could do hopefully at some point like on, on Zoom or whatever just more philosophical conversations mm-hmm. get deeper deeper into these ideas but I think it'll, it'll be cool to end on this topic right now just uh, solipsism mm-hmm. you know we're talking about how one thing that we do know is that there's consciousness like we if you define consciousness as like what it's like to be something okay and then there's there's some there's some uh, complexities like my impression is that uh, Sridhar Maharaj he he says that everything is conscious but again so how are we gonna how do we uh, understand this is it the idea that like okay every atom is conscious and maybe it has its own consciousness but my my I have consciousness in my brain or whatever maybe not my brain but I have a consciousness that is kind of continual throughout my life but maybe even each of my cells has a consciousness, but I'm just not connected to that consciousness, but I'm just you know, connected to this one consciousness. Yeah, I mean, think of, you know, you have a phenomenon of like a tapeworm lives in your body, yeah. but that's a different unit of consciousness than you. That's yeah. a different 
being than you. Um, sorry, I don't know if that's exactly the point, yeah. but it's possible. So we are, there's other conscious entities in the human body. It just so happens that karmically, as human birth, we are the one that is enjoying the faculties of human consciousness in that body where other things are living in other spectrums of consciousness in that same body. Something like that. Yeah, so, and then, like, each cork itself is conscious. Mm -hmm. Each proton is conscious. And maybe they, there's a synergy, like, Maybe each atom is conscious, but each cork with an atom is conscious, but maybe they're they're not they're not united in the conscious. Maybe there's like a separate conscious, but maybe the whole river is conscious, but then also each atom in the river is conscious. So one 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 aspect of that is that there's what one of the Hello? Hey what's up? Like, what were we just talking? Yeah, so like maybe the earth, the earth itself, oh, so like you, some sort of magnetic. Yeah, yeah go no, ahead. Yeah, sorry. So there's a distinction. So there's by the Vedic science or metaphysics, yeah. there is a distinction between what's called Jiva Atma, Jiva Atma, or this individual souls, where like minute particles of consciousness that's the same soul that inhabits human body animal body like i was talking earlier full spectrum of bodies can be animated by that soul principle each one is an individual but there's unlimited of them that's one category of conscious being but there's another category called paramatma or many names but Bhagavan, Krishna, anyway, there's a super consciousness. Okay. The distinction between the super consciousness and the supreme consciousness and the individual consciousness, there's there's a distinction between them that's eternal. Mm-hmm. Which is that the supreme being has always been and will always be the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient origin and controller. Okay. And so the individual units of consciousness that we are, we are the potency of that one universal consciousness. So some people take that and say, oh, we're, there's one universal consciousness and we're all part of it, which is true, but that one universal consciousness also has distinct personality and, and initiative from the individual sparks of consciousness. Yeah. So when we say that everything is conscious, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the same thing that I am. It means that the universal, omnipotent, omnipresent, conscious source, everything, what we call, for us, there's a distinction between consciousness and matter. But for the omnipotent source from whom both consciousness and matter are expressions of his energy. Yeah. From his point of view, everything is his potency. In his hand, it's malleable. In his hand, matter is conscious substance because it's his energy and he has that relationship to manipulate it as one of his energies. Mm. For us, as minute 
particles of consciousness, the distinction between matter and spirit is relevant to us, but to the Supreme Being who's omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient, everything is a variety of his conscious energy. Mm-hmm. So, so when we say something like everything is conscious, again, it's back to context. There's a context where that is applicable and understood. And it's possible for individual units of consciousness that experience both consciousness and matter through spiritual evolution to come to a point where they can also perceive that everything that exists in is the conscious energy of the Supreme Being. But that's something that's perceived by that evolution. Until someone has realized that the distinction between consciousness and matter is very relevant to us. Yeah. And so that's something, that's another conversation that's called something called Adhikar, which is qualification, which is, you know, just a crude example. (laughs) I always use this one. Mm. The difference between a doctor cutting you open and a killer cutting you open. (laughs) On one level, they're doing the same thing. They're using a sharp piece of metal to cut your body open, but the results are very different. A killer either has no knowledge of what they're doing or has the intention to harm you and kill you, whereas a doctor is trying to help you and save you and make your health better. So adhikar means like qualification or capacity. So in, in the gradation of spiritual knowledge, there's many truths that may be applicable to someone who has realized them. But for someone who hasn't gone through that process to elevate their consciousness, if they try to act or perceive or whatever things that they don't have qualification for, then it becomes like malpractice. In other words, you have to proceed according to the level of realization that's applicable to you. Mm. So for someone who has not yet realized their eternal nature of their soul or anything like that, the relationship between consciousness and matter as two distinct experiences is the reality that you're living in. So you have to proceed accordingly. But we know from the scriptures that it's possible for someone to evolve to such a degree that that distinction between consciousness and matter is is like less relevant or secondary to them because they can perceive the presence of the supreme being's consciousness in all things. Yeah, and even even we talked about like von Neumann, the physicist, quantum mechanics, he's saying that matter is produced by consciousness. Right. You know, so they're just getting metaphysical stuff like that. Right. But here's an interesting Mm -hmm. little book. Uh, called Schumacher's uh, Guide to the Perplexed. Okay. Before I get into this, though, really quick, what, what do you think about this idea? So, okay, he's saying everything is conscious. Mm-hmm. So, again, there's these, like, units, and there's probably, maybe there's, like, an overarching, so maybe Gaia, the mm-hmm. the Earth, mm-hmm. or, or that'd be Buma, Buma Dave, right? Mm-hmm. But, Bumi, or, 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 or let's just say the Earth in general. Yeah. Like, okay, there's, there's a Morpha, there's a morphological or morphogenetic field coming from it, I don't know, from the, 
what do they call it? Like electromagnetic field permeating from it. Maybe there's some sort of consciousness involved with that. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it has a consciousness. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then also, does each mountain on earth... Okay, so we, we know about like Go, Go Verdon Hill. Like mm-hmm. that, that has a consciousness. Mm-hmm. But are these Ultimately, like separate or, or, or like even like mm-hmm. this piano? Does it mm-hmm. have a consciousness that's different from... Or like each does does one of my legs have a consciousness, but I'm just not connected to it. That I don't know, you know. Like where 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 are we making the distinctions? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a hard question. It kind of gets to this extrapolating idea of quantum physics, where the thing that you're perceiving is affected by the observer. Yeah. So what has consciousness? What doesn't have consciousness? How conscious is it? Where does the line drawn between one thing to another? Yeah, some of that is gonna factor in on the observer. What to like if we go to the idea of God or Krishna, everything has consciousness and personality. Mm. Everything, matter, and everything else, anything that's existing is a derivative of his potency and his energy, and has some purpose in his mind. In his grand scheme, it's all play. Yeah. So everything has a purpose in some capacity and everything has consciousness as its foundation because he is that foundation and he's all conscious. Yeah. So to Krishna's mind, everything is conscious. Everything okay. has a purpose. Where the lines of demarcation are drawn or not drawn, that's also a dynamic thing. Yeah. That depends <clears throat> on his mood, his play. So that's one extreme of the spectrum. Now, going to the other side, to limited observers, limited perception, it comes back to the idea of Adhikar. Who is perceiving it? What is their level of depth of perception? What is conscious and not conscious and where the lines are drawn? That's going to be very relative to the person observing. I don't know if that answers the question at all, but does that kind of... Yeah, that that was like, that was it, a really it, good, it, good, good answer. There's, there's a number of layers that could be, again, accurate in a certain context. But if we just want to get to the root idea of the principle, then my answer would be that there's a supreme, omniscient being of from whom everything that exists is derived from his spiritual potency yeah so for him there is no such thing as matter everything is one form or another of his spiritual potency yeah and how dynamic or conscious or individualized it is that depends on his desire <laughs> that that can that can be expressed different ways and i was I'll... so everything that's less than that is just a subdivision depending on who's observing that's existing inside of that system as the basis and just just to go to that guided perplex book by Schumacher, mm-hmm. he talks about how Aristotle demarcated four levels of being, mm-hmm. and the first level is the mineral kingdom, and he says that mm-hmm. that this is like cause. Okay. Um, then the second level is the plant kingdom, which is based around stimulus. So I think of like the the mineral kingdom would be like the first quadrant sensation perception response awareness maybe it can have like sensation maybe a rock can have sensations i don't know if it's, per- yeah, it's possible well, according to the scriptures yeah yeah and then yeah. and then like the the plant maybe the plant actually can have belief belief faith behavior belonging that's the second quadrant okay. 
it's possible, but he says that, that that's based around stimulus. Like plants, they have if if you put the light on it, it's gonna grow toward the that's light. There's exactly, stimulus. Yeah. So maybe that's a sort of consciousness, mm-hmm. maybe kind of awareness. Yeah, definitely. The, the rock yeah. might have awareness. Well, think of it. I mean, you have a dead plant under light. Mm-hmm. Say you have a plant. You have four windows. Mm-hmm. In between two windows is a dead plant. One of the blinds is open, one of the blinds is closed. And you have another set of two windows, and there's a plant in between, and it's alive. Mm. One of the blinds is open, one of the blinds is closed. One of them is going to grow towards the light. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, the distinction between a dead plant and the living plant, and how they respond to stimulus, is an observable difference. Yeah. So, we would say that consciousness is present in the living plant in a way that causes this response... Whereas in a dead plant, that that presence of, we would say, suppressed consciousness that's in plants, mm-hmm. even that much isn't present, so you don't see any response. Something like that. Yeah, so they, they, they can respond. They have, like, you know, some people argue that, it's, that animals don't have any real consciousness. They don't have feelings. Mm-hmm. It's just instinct. But I don't... I, I can't imagine that that's the case. But then, yeah, so then he no, says the third level is the animal kingdom, and he says that there's motive. So there's more like, he, he, I think he thinks there's like emotion in animals, mm-hmm. feelings. Sure. Yeah. I mean, watch any video, you see animals cry, you see they care about their owner, you see they get angry. I mean, and the, and the question is, like, I think that, like I was saying, the Native Americans are saying that mm-hmm. if an animal could talk, it would be just like us. And maybe the a big thing, yeah, there is a cerebral cortex, maybe that has an effect. But maybe thinking does have a lot to do with just our vocal cords because people think that like vocal cords is sub, like our thoughts are just sub vocalized speech mm-hmm. because even when we think our, our vocal cords are moving slightly mm-hmm. and maybe that is the main di- distinction is just that we have language capacity. I don't know if that's really what what is the thing that separates animals from humans. But he says the fourth level is a human mm-hmm. and he says that humans have will mm-hmm. and that that level of consciousness. I mean, I- that's interesting like I said I don't want to like critique too much because everything has a context so I don't not yeah. familiar with that but I mean you could go to say you know plants have will if a plant's growing towards the light yeah. I guess it depends on how it's specifically understood in that context yeah maybe maybe like plants have will but maybe there's just a higher degree of will I don't know sure yeah I mean that's what we the, I'm trying to think where you could find this written in some of the books but Bhakti Gunatakura one of the previous oh he said he said humans have free will okay yeah um he talks about different levels of consciousness suppressed which is uh inanimate so plants and stones that's the most suppressed form of consciousness Mm. constricted yeah then animals is the second level, then three levels in humans, he says. Mm-hmm. One is uh, materialistic consciousness. Yeah. I'm kind of summarizing them. One is spiritual inquiry consciousness and yeah. spiritual practice consciousness. And then the highest one is spiritual realization consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then this is this will be like the last philosophical mm. like metaphysical concept we'll get into I think mm. but what about the idea of uh, I was going to talk about solipsism like if all we know is that we're conscious that's all we can really be sure about I can't really be sure that this table's here but I'm sure that I'm conscious that a table's here 
okay. like in a dream. Mm-hmm. And whether the consciousness, like, yeah, even the consciousness is part of Krishna, okay. Mm-hmm. But we, we this can lead to solipsism where I can even question, do you really exist or are you just a part of my, my experience? Mm-hmm. I'm just experiencing that you exist. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you can get even really more complex where I was looking at the Facebook post where this guy was saying like, okay, 90% of people are projections and they're just filling mm-hmm. up space and, and they seem like they have emotions and they're doing mm-hmm. things, but they're not really. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it can be conceived that Krishna could do this. Like he can create a universe where there's just like 5% of the people are really emotional and the other ones are just like filling up space like Agent Smith or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're, they're, they're just like... F- do, doing their thing to make you to, to to make the matrix function. So let me let me just say this real quick. Yeah. The guy who's saying ninety percent of people are decoys, yeah. mannequins, yeah, and ten percent are real. Or philosophical zombies is what they call them too. Okay. I'm assuming he is including himself in the ten percent of real people. But we don't know. Maybe he maybe he's one of the zombies. We don't know. Okay. Yeah. So I I would just say that. Most people that will hear that, they'll be like, oh, I'm one of the real ones. They yeah. would assume that, like, I'm not a man. Well, I, I obviously assume it, but I can't be sure that right. you assume it because I don't know if you're conscious, is right. what he's saying, yeah. So, so if everyone on the planet gets exposed to this idea and they all think that they're real, I, I don't know, I guess my point is that it seems kind of arbitrary. Yeah. It seems kind of just preferential. It's not very consistent. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to take this. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I know that there's a some sort of story that the Buddha, the Maitreya Buddha, when he comes, he's going to be able to make statues speak, whether that's metaphorical or not. No, I mean, that would go to, you know, one way to think of it is, uh, if I understand the terms correctly, you know, software and firmware. Yeah. So, like, software is manipulatable by the user. Yeah. Firmware is the part that the company designs that you can't mess with. That's rigid. See what I'm saying? Yeah. But the firmware is also software to the company. Yeah. The company that has control of the product that made the firmware, they can update their firmware. They can change the firmware. Okay. So for them, firmware is software. Software meaning malleable. Firmware meaning we can't change it. So on the user end, there's certain aspects of the system that we can't manipulate. It's locked to us. It's hard, hard and fast rules that we can't alter. But the same company that designed it, they have access to that part of the product, we'll say a phone where the firmware is where they can they can manipulate the firmware they have the certificates or the clearance or the passwords or whatever to alter the firmware of a phone whereas on the user end you can't interfere with the firmware it's locked so matter is firmware to us matter operates by certain laws that we don't control so to us that's firmware but to the company that designed the matter, it's software. It okay. can be manipulated by the owner. Okay. So that's like our 
relationship. We're the user. We're on the consumer end of this material experience. Some of it's software. We can alter within a certain range. Some of it's locked. We have no access to change how it operates. Yeah. Gravity, et cetera, et cetera. A billion things are out of our hands. But to the owner who designed it, it's all software. Gravity can pull you up. Gravity can pull you down. Gravity can pull you... That's... In the hands of the owner, it's all malleable. Statues can talk, whatever it is. If, if that's why I say there's a distinction between different types of conscious energy, conscious entities. There's a supreme being, a super consciousness, who has complete, open, restrictionless access to everything because it's his creation. <laughs> and then there is the subservient consumer end which is the individual souls that have limited access and are ultimately under the uh, provisions of the owner so that's sometimes people get into spirituality they get confused between being on the consumer end and being the proprietor this this confusion happens solipsism is kind of like that yeah. It's like, oh, matter is is a byproduct of consciousness and the only conscious entity that I know for a fact exists is myself. So I must be able to manipulate anything but then it doesn't play out in any tangible way that proves that. It's just a person lost sight of the fact that just because matter is malleable by consciousness not your consciousness. You have a very limited spectrum of how you can influence matter. The principle is correct, but there's a supreme conscious being for whom solipsism is true for one. <laughs> and we're all, if you want to take that model, say, oh, the 10% are real, and we'll say one is real and everyone else is customer. Yeah, I was I was thinking though that there's probably there's different variations of solipsism where there could be one where you're like I am God, someone mm. could say that and and I'm controlling it. But at the same time, I could imagine you could imagine Krishna creating a world where there's just one person conscious. Let's just say it's me, because I don't know. Mm. And but yeah, he's still in control. He's still in control of everything. Mm -hmm. But there's one conscious person in it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, context. If we just following the description in the scriptures, that would be in a sense Lord Brahma. Uh, he is fundamentally an individual soul. Yeah. But the entire universe is occurring. He's the firstborn person in the universe and he's the engineer. Yeah. So his consciousness is on a much grander, superior scale than us who are living within that universe. Okay. Now, back to the other points about transmigration, the soul that inhabits a dog at the park can be a Lord Brahma at some point. Yeah. So, in that sense, it's a post that can be occupied by any soul, potentially, but when you're in that post, your role and influence and your consciousness holds much more weight than those who are under your influence. Yeah, and I like your what you were talking about last time I was talking to you, where you were saying like, yeah, there there are some, or are they called CDs, the people who have supernatural powers. Sidis, yeah. Sidis are 
My pronunciation is great, so I'm just pronouncing it how I know to pronounce it. I'm sure there's a more specific way. How you spell it, though? Uh, S, I mean, in, in English, it's usually written as S-I-D-D-H-I. That's what I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, Sijis are basically that. Yoga Sijis are a person who cultures consciousness to a degree where their consciousness has a broader scope of how it can manipulate matter than than the average person if that like just to put it simply yeah if, if you know but even that is occurring on a limited basis yeah not only is it limited in its quality but it's also limited in terms of how long it lasts it's not eternal so so even though those things are possible they're by the standard of the devotional scriptures they're still considered somewhat like uh like novelty items and and there's yeah there's still a supreme authority determining what what who can have sure. that yeah exactly you're you, the greatest yoga cities are still under the jurisdiction of the supreme being he can give he can take away he can limit he can extend so it's never like you know it's like i don't know it's kind of a crude example but if you are in prison or something and you have an endless supply of ramen noodles you like that's like a status symbol like if you're outside (laughs) prison you have a Bentley it's like oh shit they got a Bentley if you're in a prison and you have like a room full of ramen noodles and people are like I don't know he just always has ramen noodles it's like a status symbol in that context yeah so measured against the full scope of spiritual prospect there's a place there's a level of understanding which says yoga siddhis are a prison cell full of ramen noodles yeah like it's a big deal to other people who live in the prison <laughs> you're yeah. impressed by it yeah that's why i look at it right? yeah you're impressed by it. okay <laughs> but but on the grand scale of what the potential of a soul is it's still ramen noodles in a prison cell yeah, they're still stuck in the matrix. And if anything, right. it could actually get you more entrapped and ensnared sure. in the matrix. That's actually, yeah, and that's an emphasis that's given in the devotional scriptures. It's actually seen as like a, a, a pitfall yeah. to become enamored or captured by things like that. It's going to send you on a whole, what do they call like detour Yeah. in terms of what's actually in your eternal best interest. Yeah, because I, you know, I remember I was listening to uh, Duncan Trussell talk about that, mm-hmm. and he was like, yeah, well, what's the point of having, like, powers, like, where you could mm-hmm. turn water to wine, or you could, like, walk on water and stuff? He says, probably just to get girls. Like, mm-hmm. you, you would use that to, to yeah. attract women. That's <laughs> true. And then, and then, yeah, then you're getting caught up well, in the sense gratification. And you, a, there's a story I heard, like, that Prabhupada tells that, the, that someone went, into the Himalayas like a young boy or something from a village and he heard like oh you can get yoga city so he was like I need it so he like went and like devoted like so many years of his life to to learn how to walk on water uh-huh. and then he came <laughs> back to the town and he wanted to show everyone and they're all he's all like 
you know, big yogi looking like, what What did you gain from all your practice? Like, watch this. And like, walks across <laughs> the stream and they're all like in awe. And there's one like old, old man in the town mm. that like doesn't come to see it, doesn't care. He just sticks to what he's doing. And then the people come and like, why didn't you come? Like, well, you got to come see this. He walks along and the old man's like, it's two paisa. The two paisa trick? It's a two paisa trick. Two paisa, paisa is like, so you know rupee is like a dollar equivalent. Yeah. And so like rupees don't have much, you know, by it. I don't know what the conversion rate is now. One dollar is forty rupees, fifty rupees, whatever it is. So a paisa is like, I'm get. I guess it's what a hundred paisa and a rupee. I mean, it's a fraction of a penny. Yeah. And, and they're almost extinct in India. They're so their value is so little, like they don't even get used okay. really. But, um. So the old man's like, oh, it's a two paisa trick, and they're like. What are you talking about? Two paisa trick? Like this is amazing. He's like, no, for two paisa the boatman will get me to the other side. Like yeah, for, I actually <laughs> yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, so I I sometimes joke this one city called Prapti City, uh, which Prapti means to like acquire something. So Prapti City is like one of the big ones. It's like you can acquire something from another place. So like if I was to leave my wallet at the house and I go fly across the world and I'm like oh I forgot my wallet and then it's like Prapti City you can like pull it <laughs> through Yoga City and and acquire it from another faraway place yeah. and I joke and I say who needs Prapti City you have Amazon Prime it's basically yeah. Prapti City and that's oh, right, right. <laughs> that's what people are talking about today is like all those m- mystical powers that they had thousands of years ago. Uh, allegedly been replaced by technology now technology right. you can do all that stuff like you could right. talk across the world and you mm. could you could we're getting to the point maybe sure. we could read people's minds and stuff i don't mm. know but. so so that so that leads to a point of like bhagavatam where the devotional scriptures set metrics for like say if you're gonna apply Say if you like running, I run around the park, I run here, I run there, I run when I feel like it, I run however long I feel like Like, that's cool, you're running, but if you want to run for, like, an Olympic sport, track or whatever it is, a relay race, that can't just be any type of running. They have certain metrics that you have to meet to qualify for that. Can you run 100 meters at once? (laughs) Can you run... A certain amount of speed can you like you need to meet certain metrics before you can enter that level of it so in the scriptures the devotional scriptures there's certain metrics for what dharma or spirituality should be sure it exists in some form or another you know anywhere someone's like i like this it makes me feel spiritual every morning when i wake up before i do anything i just sit Oh, and I speak five minutes to focus on my breath. It's like, yeah, cool. It's something. We're not dismissing it. But when you want to get to, like, standardized metrics for the professionals of spiritual prospect, hmm. they have a more standardized approach. Anything and everything won't do. You have to qualify certain metrics to enter that level of discussion seriously. Mm. So one of the bars that's set 
for what spirituality should be conceived of as, or what Dharma should be conceived of as, is can it deliver someone from the cycle of birth and death, from the cycle of samsara and karmic bondage? Whatever you're calling Dharma or a spiritual path, can it produce this result? That's the minimum entry-level standard. Whatever you're calling Dharma or spirituality, it has to be able to lead you beyond the cycle of repeated birth and death. And if it can't do that, it doesn't really count for much. It doesn't qualify for these discussions. <laughs> yeah. So, so when you measure the prospect of the eternal soul against eternity... All of a sudden, you see things like yoga siddhis, which are very impressive. They fall short. They're not. They don't. They don't meet minimum standards of what dharma should be. If that makes sense. Yeah. So it's kind of like I always say the the root, the sort of basic. Root, and this also relates to the idea of sectarianism of the the basic root of discretion why certain things are seen as good or certain things are seen as bad or certain things are seen as favorable or certain things are seen as unfavorable to spiritual culture from the Vaishnava point of view like a cornerstone of reasoning for how those assessments are made is you measure it against eternity. Anything which has temporary benefit that doesn't last forever doesn't count. That can't be the goal. Anything that produces future bondage and future misidentification for the eternal soul, that doesn't count. That can't be the goal. So whatever process and whatever prospect a person is pursuing, it has to be measured its value has to be measured against eternity. Does it hold up in eternity? The dis- the discretion to understand the difference between that which is eternal and that which is not eternal is like the root of discretion as to how things are evaluated in Vaishnavism. Yeah, I was thinking that somebody who's jaded or kind of cynical, he's going to listen to this and he's going to be like, okay okay I'm gonna be reborn like look, look at my life it's not like I'm, I have a, a high level of consciousness I'm probably mm-hmm. gonna be reborn as as an animal or something mm-hmm. and probably gonna go to the maybe even a hellish planet I don't know mm-hmm. someone might say this and they might say who cares and I, I might as well just really enjoy myself right now mm-hmm. and just like try to have sex as much as I can mm-hmm. just indulge in some really really nice food mm-hmm. and and you know it, it, let's say I'm I'm in this matrix and, and Krishna made this matrix and he wants me to you know transcend it okay but I don't really care like let me just yeah. indulge mm-hmm. just have yeah. fun yeah I mean it's a it's a common <laughs> notion um, you know maybe not in the west so much because the background of understanding of reincarnation and stuff isn't there but yeah. in India where it is there there's people that take that approach yeah. Like they know, or at least they accept, in theory, the idea of soul reincarnation, and they're still just like, "Well, fuck it, <laughs> I got time. I got what I have in hand at present is the opportunity to have as much 
sensual based fun as possible. Yeah. And according to my level of experience so far, that's the funnest thing that I've ever done. So let me just do that as much as possible. Yeah. And fuck it. That's a very common thing. And to some extent, I think, you know, in some cases you can change someone's perception or perspective by discussion but in some cases people just gotta learn from experience (laughs) and and i guess that that the universe is kind of compassionate in a way or like it's set up Mm. in a way that it's going to help break you out of that because you're going to find a lot of suffering one thing i would add to that is that if the idea the root principle of that type of thinking is I want to have as much as most fun as possible. Yeah. Then you can just follow that metric of logic and say, all right, if you want to have as most fun as possible, then don't work. Don't take care of your health. Don't anything. Just whatever money you have now, just completely go for like in one night blow it all and have as much fun as possible no but I'm not because then tomorrow I won't have fun I'll suffer more tomorrow if I spend all my money tonight dancing and gambling and whatever else I want to do I'll be broke by tomorrow morning I won't even be able to eat breakfast I'm going to be miserable so it's like alright so even the person that wants to have the most gross and mundane form of pleasure as possible they have their own logic as to how to regulate that to to extend that so that today's fun tomorrow's fun you see what I'm saying they'll still go get their health treated no one likes going to the dentist no one likes going to the doctor but they'll still do it to ensure enough health to be able to have as much base fun in the future you see what I'm saying so even when your idea is to have as much short-sighted fun as possible you still have some intuition which says I have to regulate this in some way so that I can milk it as long as possible if I just blow out tonight like mm. I could just die tonight yeah or or whatever so it's like so then so then the question comes a person whose only desire is to have as much fun and experience as much pleasure as possible they have some understanding that I have to regulate it in some way I still have to go to work if I want to party on the weekend I have to work during the week otherwise I have no money on the weekend so they're willing to make certain sacrifices and compromises that aren't as much fun as possible to be able to create fun experiences in the future right Mm -hmm. so taking that same principle a step further then the question comes of like refinement it's like, oh, I want to have as much fun as possible. I want to get drunk on the weekend. So I'm going to work one hour and get this much money and buy this shitty beer on the weekend. But then it's like, oh, but if I work these many, if I suffer, if I do a sacrifice that I don't want to do for these many hours, I can buy all this fancy shit and really have a good time drinking like high quality stuff. So what you're dealing with is a desire for happiness and some willingness to compromise your short-sighted happiness to produce a higher quality of happiness at another time, even from the most mundane point of view that logic applies. So really then someone's like, Oh, if I save up $50, I'll be able to drink. But then one day they drink some type of liquor. That's all thousand dollars a bottle. And they're like, that stuff is so good. 
that I'm willing to work my ass off and get a thousand dollars so I can drink that on the weekend. So basically what it is is according to what standard of pleasure you understand to be rewarding, you're willing to do that much sacrifice to make that possible. See what I'm saying? Yeah, and I'm thinking too, like, let's say I say, okay, I'm just going to just enjoy myself, have as much sense pleasure as possible, and I start mm-hmm. watching a bunch of porn. Okay. Then eventually I'm going to get erectile dysfunction. Right. Then, and this is going to lead to a bunch of suffering. Of course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the point. That's the, So that my point is that if you use the desire for happiness as the root of logic, yeah. that same... Real, really, you could say for people in spiritual pursuit or material pursuit, that's still the common ground, yeah. which is I want to experience as much happiness of the highest quality as much as possible. Mm-hmm. That's actually what people who are pursuing spiritual things also are motivated by, as well as the person that's, you know, just YOLO or whatever, that type of approach. So... So really, what you what and to your point is that the 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 short sightedness or the long sightedness of how you understand happiness affects the process that you're willing to undergo to achieve it. If I'm short sighted, I'll be like I'm gonna have as much short sighted fun as possible, and I'll be erectile dysfunction or kidney failure, or whatever, yeah. in a couple of years. But someone that understands happiness a bit better, they're like, I'm going to regulate that so I can have prolonged happiness of a higher quality, whatever. So if you keep following that thread of logic, what you end up with is according to the taste which someone has had. Because it's like if I, I sometimes say if I've only eaten Little Caesars pizza my whole life, yeah. I can't say whether that's good pizza or bad pizza. That's just pizza. That's what pizza is. And if I like it, then I'm like, I want Little Caesars, I want Little Caesars, I want Little Caesars. But if I have really good quality pizza once, like whatever you want to say, Italian, homemade, organic, whatever. For the rest of my life, I'm like, fuck Little Caesars. That's trash. (laughs) I'm going to skip 10 days of eating Little Caesars to buy that pizza once a week because it's that good and it's that worth it. So the pursuit of pleasure is still the root cause of both both ways of thinking. The difference is that depending on what you've been exposed to as happiness, your pursuit of pleasure is willing to take different forms based on what you've understood to be happiness. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So so when you introduce the idea of spiritual prospect it may or may not be enough to change someone who's in a very low standard of pleasure, but fundamentally the same logic that they're applying to a self-destructive pursuit of happiness would guide them in a spiritual pursuit had they had a taste of the value of it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I was thinking too, maybe like a Shiva worshiper. I can understand some Shiva mm-hmm. worshipers in that. Let's Let's say you grow up in a village... Or actually, uh, let's just say, yeah, you grew up in a village and you've been mistreated your whole life. Okay. And and you, your family's, your, your mother's been raped by the the tribe that came through. You okay. know, I'm thinking of like the Dr- Dravidians or the Aryans or, or maybe just like okay. you grew up, you grew up in the hood, hidden hood in America. Mm-hmm. 
and you've been you're victimized, redlining, mm. you know, mistreatment, mm. and then you say, I get pleasure by destruction because the, right. this you know, that's my whole world I've been I've been the prey. Been exposed to. Yeah, I've been yeah. the prey. I've been beaten down. Mm. My you know my neurons in my brain haven't matured because mm. I've had a, a poor nutrition. Mm. There's lead in my water. Mm. You know, probably your IQ's decreased. Okay. You know, you you all you've seen a bunch of chaos and, and destruction your whole life. Now you're like, you know what gives me pleasure? Mm. I want to get back right. at at this okay. society, at the mm. at the at the man, at the you know. Okay. Then you become a Shiva worshiper, and maybe that person is getting a lot of pleasure from that. But then, as you would say, like it's not going to be. He's going to end up in jail. Yeah. And then and then there's no pleasure. That's why. So I say, you know, this is something nah, I say. She she wanted to say, you know, a man should be judged by his ideal. So you can triangulate the sort of pattern or trajectory that someone's life is going to take by understanding what they understand what they what someone conceives to be prospect prospect means everyone has a desire to be happy down to the animals and whatever where there's consciousness back to the first question there's a desire for happiness and so that desire for happiness is innate but where there's a lot of variety is what each person understands to be happiness. That can be wildly different. So back to kind of our other conversations, is kind of tying it together. You have a universal constant and then many variegated things side by side. So the universal constant is the desire for happiness. The variegated, unlimited varieties that exist as a correlative to that are what people understand to be happiness. That can be as many possibilities as there are people breathing. Each person can have a different notion of what will bring them happiness. So depending on what someone conceives of that will bring them happiness and what means they think will lead them to achieve that, by these two things, you can understand everything about the trajectory someone's on. What do they conceive of as happiness? And what do they conceive of as the means to achieve it? That's going to tell you everything about why they get out of bed in the morning, why they move this way, why they talk this way. It's all going to be a reflection of these innate things that someone may not have ever even taken the time to examine. We're, we're guided by, as you said, our surroundings. By point of view of scriptures, we'd say something called samskar, which is impressions from previous lifetimes. Karma. There's many factors that combine to influence what do I understand to be happiness and what do I understand to be the means to achieve that happiness. So what the scriptures are saying is that don't just allow that to be made up for you by a clusterfuck of circumstances. Make the effort to examine these questions on your own. Because, you know, it's kind of like the idea of like being a follower in a crowd. If I grow up and chaos is going on around me and lead it based on these new, new, many influences outside of myself I am just pushed into an idea that if I'm just the loudest person barking in the crowd if I'm the most feared person I'll be happy be 
because when I'm on the receiving end of it, I'm miserable, but the person doing it doesn't have the same fears that I do. So let me be in that position. It's like you're allowing circumstances to mold you. And to some extent, that's a big conversation because if you have good influences, you want them to mold you. But the point is that circumstances influencing you from outside and then some faculty for discretion, soul searching, inquiry, examining, self-reflection. People don't have the same capacity to do that, but everyone has some capacity to try at some level. (laughs) So that's a very important part of life, self-reflection, self-examination, to compare and contrast and think through, take, make the effort to think through what, what path am I on? What desires are my subconscious impelling me to act on that I haven't even taken the time to think about? Like a child does so many things, a child does so many things may cause ruckus everywhere. And then people tell you, don't do this, don't do this. But at a certain point as a child's growing up, they'll just think, yeah, like why am I throwing glass on the floor? Like when I step in it, it's painful. It's like, so, so there's a capacity for us to examine the impulses that we act on without thinking. And that, you know, at whatever level of capacity someone has, that's an important thing to try to do. Because even we'll do it imperfectly. We'll examine ourselves imperfectly. We'll have various motives and desires that may not be good for us, but we're really attached. We can't see past them. They're going to influence our rationale. We're going to have somewhat one-sided logic when we deal with other people. Like, it's good when I do it, it's not good. These are all human error limitations that people have. But at some point, you got to start trying and work from there and refine it as you go. If there's no effort to reflect or examine oneself, regardless of the outside circumstances, then really, that doesn't lead to happiness ever around by circumstances to the point where you're either going to suffer so much that you're forced to reflect on your choices even though you didn't want to or you're just going to end up in a situation where it's so overwhelming that you either dead or can't you know a person goes mad or something like that so and I think it's interesting how like the universe makes it compelling a lot of these scientific theories so, for instance, like genetic Darwinism in evolution, okay. it, it really appears that in, in like in a dream, the dream is going to make you think that certain things are real to keep you going in it and to keep you acting a certain way. And if you if you want a materialistic notion of reality, reality is going to allow for you to believe in it. Yeah. And so then I can imagine, you know, so someone's framework of, of consciousness might be, okay, well, I want to have as much children as possible mm-hmm. because that's what. So I'm going to be like Genghis Khan and 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 conquer and, mm-hmm. and or I'm going to maybe be a sperm donor or something. Mm-hmm. And that's how he's gaining happiness. Mm-hmm. But that's also going to lead to problems for him because he's going to have this superior, inferior, you mm-hmm. know, selfish mentality that's going to lead to other problems mm-hmm. in his life. And mm-hmm. maybe hopefully he'll grow out of that. But mm-hmm. it's just like it is interesting how how. And I talked to my friend Akunja, who's a Hare Krishna guy, Krishna mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kashyap Iskon, and he was saying that Krishna is so loving 
that if you want a materialistic conception, yeah, he will give he he will allow for facilitate that. Facilitate it. Yeah. He'll facilitate that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you can live live in that in that f- paradigm and framework. But then again, though, I was thinking, okay, let's say I do act out uh, in a selfish mode of being, and I'm reborn as a as a as a Something. deer. A lot of people are gonna say, "So what? The deer doesn't even remember. Deer doesn't have the consciousness to even remember right, the so previous that, so life." So again, that goes back to the the scope of what does one understand to be happiness? Because yeah. there's a certain like if you tell a child, if you find out your child's cutting class and going and playing with their friends all day, and you say. If you cut class, you're not going to get a passing grade. There's a lot of kids, myself being one of them. Yeah. It's like, so, so what? <laughs> yeah. Like, what do I care about a passing grade over having fun with my friends? Yeah. Like a letter on a piece of paper <clears throat> doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But if it plays out over time, there's not going to be a person in the world that knows how to read that would look back and say I wish I would have spent that time where I learned how to read which is useful for the rest of my life playing on the monkey bars with my friends which I would never remember for the rest of my life where I can't do shit because I can't read so it's like that that short sightedness of what happiness is or isn't it's really just a question of scale. <clears throat> the desire for happiness is universal, and depending on one's awareness or sensibility of what happiness means, or how large of a scope they've come to understand that, that's going to determine what they value, what sacrifice they're willing to pay to achieve that. So the idea that if I'm going to be reborn as an animal or whatever, sometimes people are just like, yo, I could be born as a dog. That's so cool. I love my dog. I've heard that before. Yeah. <coughs> From one point of view, yeah, yeah. it makes sense. But when you have a notion that it's kind of like, I don't know, in, in business, they talk about disrupting the market. Say, like, oh, the, you know, whatever, the... Uh, satellite radio disrupted local radio or something like that local radio broadcast within a town but then you have satellite radio which is internet radio basically which is a radio station can broadcast anywhere in the world so it's like the value of your local radio station just got disrupted it just got minimized because there's a much larger capacity, maybe better music, whatever it is, so it's like the value of one thing can be disrupted when a higher quality thing is compared against it, if you don't compare that against a higher quality thing there's no way to assess whether it's up or down so so these notions that, oh, in a future birth I could be this or I could go to hell, but I'm not even going to remember it and so what's the point I'm just going to enjoy now that's logical when 
the higher value or the higher perception of the fact that my soul, who I am, who experiences both happiness and pain, is wandering from one bodily form to another, to another, to another, forgetting each one, investing all of my hopes and dreams for happiness and pleasure and love and whatever in a body that's full of anxiety, pain and fear. Ultimately, that full investment of my life in that one identity is washed away at death. I don't remember it. And then I do that again in another body that's potentially animal or anything else. And I'm wandering from one body to another, ultimately in a state of frustration, fear and confusion, investing all of my efforts in a short term happiness that in its best case scenario, I achieve for a minute and then it's devoured by death and I forget it all. At some point, when you put that on a large enough scale, the potential for a person's consciousness to rise to the occasion and see this actually is not an equation for happiness. This is an equation for suffering. That It's all a question of scale. Depending on the level of what a person understands to be prospect and happiness and in their best interest, it's going to disrupt different markets. So the idea of spiritual life or spiritual culture is to introduce an understanding of spiritual happiness which continues beyond an, in, beyond an individual body, which is a permanent result that carries and which ultimately can liberate someone from the cycle of birth and death, where I try my hardest to be happy for a moment, die, forget everything, suffer the reactions of what I did in my past life, and keep trying to... It's like if you have a credit card and you're paying it you know, I have to pay $60 a month to keep it active, and each time I'm blowing my budget and increasing my debt. That's happiness for someone that doesn't think very far down the road for a very short period of time. Eventually it gets so complicated that it's not happiness at all. So karma is operating like that. So as long as a person doesn't have a notion of paying off their credit card and actually having a profitable life where they're not chasing down debt or rather debt isn't chasing them down. If a person doesn't even believe that that's possible, then of course they're going to do that. That's all they know. But when you have a friend and they're like, what are you doing all the time? You're in difficulty, like pay it off. Don't dig the hole deeper, actually pay down the debt, get a profitable life you have a friend that's living like that and you look at that and the fact that they're much happier on a consistent basis and then all of a sudden you're like, actually, this is dumb. What I'm doing is really dumb. I'm harming myself. So that perspective only comes when it comes in contrast with a higher understanding of what happiness is. So that's a challenge of spiritual life or preaching, as it may be called, which is to get someone to appreciate a long-term notion of spiritual prospect to the degree that they're willing to limit or regulate their pursuit of short-sighted happiness at all costs. And some people are receptive to it easy, some people aren't. You know, it's it's a mixed bag. Ultimately, and what the scriptures say is that eventually, once a person suffers enough in the cycle of birth and death, like this idea of an old soul, like someone that's been around the block a couple of times, 
it's much easier for them to be receptive to these things because they've experienced suffering so much over the course of different lives that that desire for a higher quality of happiness they're they're open to hearing spiritual messages and spiritual thoughts and they're willing to value yeah. them in such a way that that becomes a priority over just short-sighted indulgence at that's the difference between the animal and a human is a human's right. able to to go beyond just those instinctual right. emotional drives right. and that's why i was saying early in the discussion that that's something that scripture say it has to be cultured mm. like the potential for a child to be educated and read things is there but if it's not cultured then it won't be realized so the potential for humans to refine themselves and have a long thinking spiritual sensibility about what is valuable in life is is there in humans but it needs some help it needs to be cultured to to come to a tangible place i got to look head back to the temple snack